In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 2044 to 2057. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. 2044. Gods of Veginess. Written by I See What's New RP. Poor Paul came the chorus of excited yips as Greyster entered the room. He smiled as a pack of youngsters, not all of which were technically his grandpups, launched themselves from their study pads and did their best to tackle him, swarming him like a swamp leeches in a skull dessa. He laughed and refused to go down until one of the youngest managed to haul themselves halfway up his back. Crying out in fake rage, he fell under the swarm, being careful to not squish anyone. All right, class, that's enough, the teacher, Goldheart, said sternly, though there was a hint of a smile in her voice. And the longer you pile on him, the less time he will have for a story. That got their attention and the pups obediently, if reluctantly, returned to their pads. It warmed his heart to see them sitting at attention. Most had ears pointed in his direction, though a few still hadn't quite developed the musculature to keep both ears from flopping down. Story? he asked, looking confused. I don't know. I might have forgotten all my stories, he teased. Papa, we can smell a lie, one of the nearest youngsters chided him. My night black, it isn't like we just opened our eyes. Language, Goldheart chided as the child's ears wilted. It's okay, I said, taking my seat and looking at the group. I probably deserve that. It's been so long since someone had the will to correct me that I've forgotten proper manners. Thank you, youngster, for setting me on the correct trail. That got him to perk right back up, and everyone started clamoring again for a story. Make it scary. I want to hear one about the princess. Tell us about your greatest hunt. I looked through the room, and one little female at the back caught my eye. It might have been the distinctive white slash above her eye, or maybe the look of frustrated concentration. But something made me call out to her. What about you? With the white above your eye, what would you like to hear about today? Are humans really the gods of veg... ven... veginess? She stumbled over her last word, and the entire class turned to look at her. Gods of veginess, I asked, racking my brain for what she could mean. I'm afraid I haven't heard of that. Uh, what do you mean, little one? I uh, heard from my brother's friend the other day, she said. He's training to be a religious man, and... He said that the humans were the body of veginess. Ah, I said, finally connecting the dots. Now I see. Would your friend happen to be a derma? Tall, heavyset fellow with a lot of long dark fur. She nodded, getting excited. Well, the word your friend said was vengeance, not veginess. Recently, the Derma have changed the avatar of their god of vengeance to that of a human. Why? She asked the question that all kids enjoy. Perhaps that's a bit of a heavy topic. Goldheart started, stopped when I held up a paw. That is a great question, and one that is incredibly serious. Are you guys sure you want a serious story before your break? Everyone immediately nodded, most because their teacher likely wanted to say no. I did note a few extremely curious cases, though, so I went on. Very well. I will tell you a story of the humans and Windfire. I am sure you've heard of humans. Most only come to our shoulders, 
and they stand with straight backs. Of all the races, they are the most versatile and most warlike. This has given rise to a multitude of human mercenary companies. Mercenaries are packs of hunters that will fight for a group in exchange for money. Now, humans are like us and are exceptional fighters. The difference between us is that the humans also worked hard to understand how to heal the injuries caused by battle. Where we prefer to let them heal and leave us reminders. In fact, each human company always had a ship that would come down after each battle and collect the injured, healing them. They didn't discriminate. They would heal friend and foe alike. Now, the Wenfire were another warlike race though they were far closer to us than the humans in thought. Death in battle was their highest glory. In fact, it was nearly mandated by their religion. And it just so happened that the Windfire were looking to expand and started attacking the nearest settlements. They belonged to the Derma. The Derma were not warriors, but builders, and so they hired humans for protection at a great cost. There was swine, they had plenty of money, and humans breed at an incredible rate. The Windfire, of course, hated that not only had someone interfered with their righteous battle, but that this enemy had the gall to deny their warriors the most honorable death. Instead, captured warriors were healed and returned in shame. These blows to their religion could not stand, and so the Windfire came up with the plan. They would destroy the heretics, and in doing so, find a way to return the lost honor to their warriors. Near the end of the battles, the honorless would be released into the battlefield, where they would take injury and lie in wait. As usual, the human medical ships would descend and try to save those they could. I paused for a second, taking a deep breath. This next spot was always the hardest for me. What the humans didn't know was that these windfire had implanted themselves with explosives. They would hide, waiting for their prey to bring them to the perfect ambush spot. Then they would detonate the bombs. In that first and only battle, 18 of the human medical ships and medical bays and combat ships were destroyed. The Windfire celebrated, having thought that this crippling blow would cause the humans to remove themselves from the war, and never again interfere with the honorable dead. Ah, oh, I'm sorry, I whined, wiping away a tear. My mate, Windrunner, was lost in one of those ships. My admission got whines of sympathy from the children, but I forged on. The Windfire were gravely mistaken. See, there are three things that you do not attack when dealing with humans. The first are their children. The second is civilians. The last are those that they heal. Attack any of these, and the deepest fractures within humanity will be healed in an instant, and the entirety of their might will descend upon you like a god from the heavens. And that is exactly what happened to the Windfire. Mercenary companies across the galaxy abandoned contracts, willingly paying double and triple the fees in their contracts. An armada from Earth, the human's homeworld, was dispatched, and the debt the Derma owed was wiped clean in an instant. 
Their entire tone of the hunt changed that day. The children leaned forward as I slightly lowered my voice. Gone were the human's compassion. Weapons never before seen used by mercenaries suddenly appeared. Infantry in armors that could turn the heaviest to blaster fire. Weapons that sought the very gas we exhaled as we breathed. Mercy was abandoned as escape pods were ruthlessly cut down. And after the battle, a new force came before the medics. Any windfire found alive was executed on the spot and left behind. Where they were once happy to hold the defensive line to protect the Derba. Now, they advanced unstoppably with armored feet. The windfire were shocked at this. The galaxy was shocked. These were not the humans we knew. These were something new, something unknown, something feared. And when they had driven the windfire back to their homeworld, they'd sent the galaxy a message. The windfire attacked those outside of combat, those who bring life instead of taking it. They turned the compassion of these people into a weapon, and for that they shall pay. Until now we have been without mercy, but we cannot allow ourselves to travel down that road to its end. For that would be spitting on the memory of those same healers who perished in that callous attack. And so, in their memory, we offer this one mercy. Your home world will not be turned into a ball of slag. Your people will not suffer for the sins of soldiers just following orders. But your leaders, those who condoned and have approved of this attack, they are already dead. In the end, we honor the compassion of those who would bring their enemies back from the brink of death. We hope that all of those watching will learn the lessons needed from these actions. By the end of the broadcast, there were several explosions on the planet. The High Priest, the Emperor, and all the high-ranking generals perished as the human armada disappeared. And ever since then, the Derma have changed the avatar of their god of vengeance to that of a human. Papa, the little female asked. What is vengeance? It is an act done in response to being wronged. But it is a different in the eyes of the Derba and many others in the galaxy. These people see vengeance as a righteous act, and it is tempered by compassion. Vengeance is done to teach a lesson, and goes no further. Beyond vengeance they teach lies dark revenge. Very few species are capable of seeking it deep enough to find revenge. And all of us hope that humans are never pushed that far. End of story. 2045. Man's Gift, written by Weird Spectre. 2561 CE. Talking of events circa 2324 CE. So sweet children. Of the harvest. You wish to know why humans came to be the most feared and equally the most respected of the races in the civilized galaxy. And here I thought of frightening old fairy tales were too scary for you. Very well. It begins as often these things do with a war. Mankind would later call it the conscription era. To those of you not already feeding the chill on your spines, look it up. Not now, I swear. Children these days need instant gratification. 
As I say, mankind would later call it the conscription era. A war blazed across the vastness of interstellar space, as two vast empires conflicted. One faction, the Corians, were three-legged creatures of immense wealth, with unique propulsion technology. And I can see from your disgust rolling through you, that most here have heard of them. The others, of course, were the Ashtai aggressors. The war was flaring of tensions as old as interstellar flight. The latest of the periodic battles fought throughout the civilized galaxy between Ashtai and Koreans. Worlds were ceded, ships sabotaged, leaders tastefully assassinated. The humans surprisingly took no part in the conflict. So long as they remained exempt from the stately proceedings of things, the human race would stay out of things. Why, they'd even sell weapons to both sides. Their warships weren't fired upon, their traders were treated more or less honorably, you're surprised. But, in truth, the Koreans were the most polite. Apparently, they'd spied on humanity some centuries before and had a healthy fear and respect of their young allies the rest of us should not have noted. There were, as always, atrocities. A city or two may have had asteroids flung at them. A careless touch of a button might have very well have glossed a few tens of thousands of orbital habitats. Neither side was innocent, and still humanity worked to manufacture and sell to the governments of both races. Nothing, it seemed, could shake them, and the Ashtai thought they understood their Korean enemy's fear of mankind. Clearly the species was psychopathic in mass. This was, as it turns out, the most assuredly not the case. A diplomatic incident went wrong on the human world of Stedfar, in the colony city's stronghold. A troop of Korean prisoners of war, led by a deserting Ashtai, had sought refugee status. It had been granted instantly, but the promise of mankind's full protection. The Ashtai were, understandably, displeased by this. An armada of Haljors descended on the planet, dropping from warp, only light minutes away to continue their ballistic trajectories into orbit. The Ashtai spoke from a position of power, dropped an anvil out of an airlock in orbit and watched the city burn. They engaged in a tactic that they'd learned through careful study of human history. Gunboat diplomacy. The humans of Steadfast refused. The clue was in the name, really. The Ashtai aggressors in orbit pointed out their numerical advantage over the defenses that the planet hadn't immediately lost when their ships arrived. The humans acknowledged this, but refused to surrender prisoners. The aggressors pointed out their technological superiority, and the humans acknowledged this too, and still they refused to surrender. The aggressors pointed out their quantum computed weapon systems, and the humans acknowledged this also, and so the Ashtai demanded to know, at least, why the people of Stronghold refused to surrender. The last words of the human ambassador, his video image, live cars from the accommodations in which they kept their alien refugees, remain etched in my memory. Because, he said, this is a defining moment. The man gestured to the group of creatures cowering behind him. A loose bunching of Koreans, still malnourished from the prison camps, and a single Ashtai in an awkward vacuum suit, unable to leave for fear of subtly different biologies conflicting fatally. You have orbital high ground. You have tactical superiority. You outgun us and outnumber us perhaps three or four to one. In any way that can meaningfully affect the course of this conflict. And yes, you have the advantage of technology. He came close to the camera, sitting down, a sympathetic look in his eyes. 
And we have something more valuable than you shall ever know. We have the moral high ground. Would you strike a defender of a group of starving, disheveled former prisoners, knowing that innocent civilians, many of them children, would die for the crime of living too close to alien refugees? Of the 314 Ashtai aggressors empowered to vote on such things, only one stood against the attack. A single artillery strike flattened a third of Stronghold, and I know exactly how many people it took. 13,672 children died in the attack or the aftermath. 18,901 adults were killed. 3,082 children were orphaned. I know these figures because Steadfast Planetary Network and the various FTL buoys and wormhole links repeated the numbers, burning them into my mind. Humanity was shocked into silence. The free traders who worked with the Ashtai previously, often considered unscrupulous and vicious. One human described a prominent such merchant as a, a man who would sell his own grandmother. Reacted not only with disgust at what the aggressors had done, but actually pulled out of contracts, leaving their severance fees unpaid, and the governmental organizations. They communicated infrequently, blaming delays and cancellations on faulty factories and such. The Ashtai found a smaller human settlement, and broadcast themselves torturing it with flames of fusion drives, adding another 612 children to the list of dead. Again, only one of the 314 voters dissented. That was when the largest human government, the Terran Empire, contacted the aggressors' voters. We have a gift for you, they said. The gift of man, a weapon so terrible and awesome that it shall bring the end of the war to the Kalshians. If only the dead are remembered, they said. The voters, all but one, were caught in an orgasmic lust for destruction and violence such a device might bring. After all, for all of humanity's general lack of development, their ability to reverse-engineer the creations of their forebearers, the First People, had led them to a great many gifts of technology, such as being the only species to manufacture vector-control technology, and only one distrusted the message, the lone dissenter. The other saw it as a sign of submission, after all. Eshtai shared a mix of pack and herd mentality. Why not also the humans? Their societies were complex enough for even a few thousand deaths to bring them such horror as cement. Seven human vessels arrived one Earth week later in the Ashtai home system. That alone was an achievement. Its location must have been bought from the Koreans for an immense fee, as no one else had found their star or its worlds on their own. They were amassing, which, like the man who came along in the suborbital skiff to deliver man's gift, Scans of the vehicle indicated it to be a cube about 33 centimeters to a side, containing many complicated components the sensors could not gather. He entered the chamber of voting with the man's gift in hand, and bowed deeply with words, The weapon is not for me to see. And like that, he was gone, his skiff rising back to orbit. Had the Ashtai aggressors had lips, they would have been salivating over their perfect cube that sat before them. In the center of the chamber, the most ingenious scans they'd ever developed couldn't breach the walls of this geometrically ideal gift. Its edges atomically sharp, right angles, and lattice nano-engineered diamondoids. Charcoal gray in color, with only the slightest light dancing through it. At last, the speaker left the seat to which the speaker was ordained, and clasped the device in a flurry of tentacles. 
On the box, the speaker found a message engraved in Ashtai symbology, a warning. This weapon will end the war. The words themselves were, like the man who delivered the gift, and the ships which delivered him, unimposing, unassuming. But they carried grammatic overtones and ominous curves and twists of symbology which implied threat. Should I open it? All but one cried, Yes! All but one were heard. Man's gift slid apart easily, opening like a treasure chest, the upper half forming a lid, folding backwards. Over the lip peaked a vast assemblage, like brass clockwork, but, em but embodied as fractal shapes, seemingly infinitely detailed. The speaker reached in, trying to discern what the people's technology could do to end the war decisively, what the humans had done to improve on their forefathers' efforts. There was a sickening crunch, and the speaker collapsed its tentacle arms spilling out of the crate broken, orifices leaking pulverized organs. In a flash, something leapt from man's gift, and all the voters were gone. All but one. The lone dissenter. The single voter, the one who'd stood against the axe of steadfast, against the destruction of the colonies, who'd also counseled against accepting the gift, and dissented against its opening. The dissenter repeated the words of the human message like some sort of mantra. The gift to end the war, if only the dead are remembered. Exiting the voting chamber, the dissenter was knocked side-faced by a sound like that of which death of the gods, the trumpets of heaven announcing atomic fire from the sky. I suppose I'll never know what the gift was. Reports vary, but it said the box was taken back to where it came from. The vast powers contained once again waiting for a new set of monsters to be channeled against. They should have known, really. The ship from which the courier of man's gift came was called the Gunboat Diplomat. Humans place great importance on names, and on the exact meaning of words. Still, I have my suspicions. A weapon based, perhaps, on vector-controlled technology, pulverizing the internal organs of the Ashtai voters. A device, maybe which heated massively one organ, or bone, or one muscle, to burst like a grenade inside the ashtai it struck. Who knows? The dissenter counted the vast cracks in the world. 19,684. One blast for each child the ashtai had killed. Looking outside, the lone dissenter saw the cause. The human ships in orbit had orbitally bombarded the Ashtai homeworld, breaking every convention and law of civilized warfare in the book. Later, I learned the gift was integral to the human's plan. The gift did not merely kill the voters. It sabotaged the aggressors' planetary defense networks, masquerading as the politicians it had just executed and using their command authorities to disable ships and orbital rings alike. The war didn't end there, of course. Across Imperial space began the conscription to drive out the last of the aggressors, leaving only us, the Ashtai remnant, a shadow of what we once were. What's that, child? How do I know what happened? The cleverest amongst you have already worked it out, of course. Who else but the one lone dissenter could have lived or to know these things? I remain to chronicle our mistakes. It reminds me of a myth of theirs I once read about a woman named Pandora and her box. Beneath war and plague and famine, it is said one thing remained at the bottom. Hope. That's what I am.
Mankind's hope that they never have to commit such atrocities again, embodied, left alive as a warning. We learned much from humanity, gumbo diplomacy, and lateral thinking, we thought, were both areas in which we had excelled, but man's gift wasn't that box, or the end of the war, or even their merciful design to allow us the freedom when we were last surrendered as a species. Man's gift was the knowledge of asymmetrical warfare. They killed billions for a few thousand dead progeny. And what a stronghold, you ask? I see it is only more proof of man's madness. From the smoldering crater, they rebuilt not only the ruined city's districts, but expanded. I hear the city is now three times the size it was when I last was there. Not that I ever get to visit, of course. Go now, children. Run off and play. Don't let an old creature's war stories frighten you. But most of all, never forget the gift the man gave. End of story. 2046. Story number one. The Alien Question. Written by JCB112. While the lofty of us now ascend towards unimaginable horizons, we legislators and ethicists are faced with the task of consolidating what is left in the dust of their great exodus. Indeed, while they gain fame and notoriety alike, leaving humanity's core in search of untold wonders, they refuse to acknowledge a matter that must be urgently addressed if we are to move forward on the home front. The alien question must be put to rest in a manner that is befitting of a wizened humanity. A humanity with the foresight of 10,000 years of painful histories to pull from. For it is our task as a mature and grounded species of the human race to ensure that we set a precedent that cannot be misinterpreted, mishandled, or in any way abused, purposely or not, by successive generations. Now, on to the task at hand. What are we to do with the 10,927 unique sapient species that have collectively reached that same unfortunate roadblock of motivational apathy? That now tread the same worn-down path, following the same beats of life, huddling by a campfire as we speak. Before we are able to answer that question, we must take into account the objective facts that govern our current circumstances. We must first assess ourselves and our own reach by reviewing the basic fundamentals that lay before us. Humanity's territorial extent, at least judicially, now encompasses the entirety of the Milky Way. With no alien polities to speak of, with no internal secessionist movements, and with no true externious or internal aggravating force, we, the United Government of Earth, and her colonies, remain the undisputed authority within the galaxy. Humanity's industrial capacity has successfully reached abundance protocols alongside functional post-scarce minimums and have been constantly sustained with no interruptions for over seven millennia following the great and last civil war. Our vast stellar industrial complexes span the breadth of entire solar systems and star clusters. Our machinery encompasses stars and black holes alike. Our FTL infrastructure allows for travel across the entire distance of the galaxy in just under a month. We have mastered interstellar industry, but we have yet to exploit every single potential primary industrial resource in this galaxy. In fact, 
over 95% of the galaxy remains untapped. Humanity's military capacity remains difficult to gauge, for we have never had an alien benchmark or metric by which we can extrapolate the effectiveness of our numerical and technological developments. Indeed, our latest conflict, the Great and Last Civil War, can only tell us so much as any developments occurring after the point would inevitably be marked improvement. Regardless of specifics, one fact remains indisputable. Humanity remains the sole and unchallenged space-faring military power. Humanity thus has no practical need for these aliens. Nor do these aliens possess anything that we cannot replicate or garner by passive observation of their inconsequential activities. And of course, the matter of threat assessment would be wasted on the discussion for obvious reasons. So that will be overlooked entirely. We are thus faced with a simple question. What are we to do with them? Now that our studies have been concluded and our quest turns into galactic, what purpose do they serve? The obvious answer is none. They serve no purpose. They hold nothing valuable. They are not a threat. They merely exist. And so, we shall legally classify them as such, with the caveat of their autonomy being respected without question. The alien shall not be interfered with. An Earth High Commission governmental organization shall be founded to ensure the protection and continued monitoring of these primitives. However, as they express no willingness to join us as equals, the Commission for Xenological Affairs shall strictly withhold from any actions that may aid in their development. The CXA shall also be responsible for their continued protection from any human interests. Finally, and perhaps most controversially, the CXA shall aid these aliens should any extraneous threat be detected and is within human logistical capacity to prevent. These threats include, but are not limited to, stellar phenomena such as asteroid impacts, solar flares, the rogue spatial anomalies. Any and all man-made stellar disturbances such as runaway gravitational collapses, high-impact debris and warp-speed collisions. Planetary phenomenon such as runaway tectonic shifts, magnetic field collapses and planetary core disturbances, but will not include minor-scale phenomenon such as localized earthquakes, metaphorical disasters, e.g. hurricanes, tornadoes, hail, and natural ecology development or decay. The reason being that such changes may eventually result in a catalyst necessary to promote adaptiveness and create drive within these otherwise stagnant aliens. The CXA must ultimately maintain a careful balance between preservationist, interventionism and conservative non-interference. These aliens had their chance to be admitted into the stars as equals. There was a seat waiting for them in the conference room, a bill that we were willing to foot and they had ample opportunity over the course of multiple generations to accept that offer. The time for that original deal has indeed come to an end. Contrary to popular belief, however, part of what offer was still on the table. It's just now up to the aliens to reach the conference room by the will of their own determination. As for now, the aliens shall remain as they have always have been, with the only change being humanity's ever-watchful gaze and protective hands, looking down upon them from the stars they refused to join. Now, with that out of the way, let us address the next matter at hand, the establishment of a third task group to scout the void between galaxies for potential void-dwelling alien fleets. End of story. Story number two.
Money shot? No, not that kind. Safe for work. 80 kilometers, at least. That's what John thought the distance was. If I could just make it there, we win. The battle had been raging through the asteroids belts for better part of 14 hours. 10 hours ago, he lost his wingman when she decided to kiss an asteroid in a failed evasive roll. Their cockpits were rated to withstand a 2-kilogram projectile at a velocity of nearly 2,000 meters per second. It didn't help much that the 40-meter rock and the combined impact velocity of 3.7 thousand. John slapped the side of his helmet to refocus. He couldn't afford to have any straight thoughts right now. His HUD was knocked out by a piece of her ship's embedding itself into his own. He tried not to look at it, his hand unconsciously tightening around the flight stick as he gazed out, trying desperately to spot any asteroids to avoid a shared fate. His focus was again diverted, but not by straight thoughts. A red light in the cockpit started to flash urgently. Another reminder. Three hours ago, he'd lost half of his heat sinks on his left side, then a near-dead-on collision. But thankfully, that was still alive. It cost him. He'd been sitting at 75% throttle, but the engines kept overheating. There was probably minor damage to the rest of the sinks from a smaller debris that he had been unable to see or dodge. With a nearly practiced motion, John triggered the emergency coolant flush. As the red light faded, an amber light sprang to life just despite him. The letters below flashed low LN. John promptly composed a haiku using only a single four-letter word that rhymes with luck. He twisted in his seat, craning his neck to look out at the canopy behind him. The haiku was again repeated, but for a different reason. The Corazian scout was close enough that he could actually see it. It was obviously waiting for the right time to make its move. John could outrun it, but only if his ship was undamaged. Even then, it was barely faster than the scout. Turning forward, he considered his options. The dog was dead ahead, made a relatively clear patch of the belt. If he redlined the engines, he could probably make it. Some of him, at least. There was probably enough liquid nitrogen left if he kept his current output. But the scout would definitely make it there before him. Humanity would lose. With a quick prayer to any god that would listen, he held the overdrive button and slammed the throttle past the safety limit. Unknown one. Stars above, did you see that? He actually blew himself up. Unknown two. What was he thinking? It was obvious to everyone that the ship was in no shape for full throttle, much less that overdrive he kicked into it. I swear I could actually see the coolant venting. Unknown number one. Because he was, wait... I don't believe it. The judges have just informed me that the Crisian Scout is second. The rules clearly state that the cockpit must cross the finish line, and the crazy bastard that blew himself up managed to launch his cockpit intact, no less, through the ring of full seven seconds ahead. Humanity takes first place, winning the 20th Galactic Grand Prix. End of story. 2047. Thus do you discover the secret to a successful prayer, written by Argus the Cat. Crowd was dying, no two ways about it. That last strike of the spear had been his wife's kiss. But it was necessary, if he was ever going to have an opening to land his own killing blow. So he'd faltered his guard just a tiny bit, and thrown his life away 
to finish off his enemy. It was a simple choice in the end. As he walked down the endless grey tunnel towards the blinding glow at the end, he thought back on his life. 36 years, growing up a farmer's son, enlisting into the militia. A short bout with the Delver team, and then the war. He'd had friends, enemies, lovers, more enemies, partners, and still more enemies in all that time. He'd briefly had a wife, which ended up in shouts and slammed doors, and still had a son, which ended up in crying when he hugged him before the last time he'd strapped on his armor and gone to battle. He'd sampled foods from across the continent, and had always wanted to save up enough to retire and bring some of the dishes of that far west to his little hometown. He also still had that debt to Kuro. The old dwarven baker, nothing ever spoken. But when times were tough, Crown Sun always had a roll in some hard cheese. And Kuro got a respectful nod and a mental note that he was good people. He had loved, maybe not a perfect life, but his life. And he regretted nothing. And he knew that if he had let that thing get through the line, if he'd faltered for even a second, if he'd failed to press the enemy to his utmost, then he'd have a regret the size of the largest moon in his heart. So he made that choice without thinking, without considering honor or duty. Just because he was the kind of man who would die for the soldier beside him. He didn't know if his hometown was still standing. When the war started, it was sudden. Some jerk woke up an ancient evil, and it took about two years for anyone to notice the missing cities and start assembling an army to stop it. Now, the demons paid in blood for every inch of ground they took, but they had plenty of blood, and the united military might of six kingdoms was running out of ground. Crown signed up without thinking about it. After all, if he didn't, who was going to protect his son, his home, his kingdom, or his world? When he stood in the line outside the local keep, he saw the same look on a dozen other faces around him. No one wanted to be there, but they were never going to be anywhere else. And when they formed up in the lines, they did it together. Crown wasn't a scholar or a lawkeeper, but he liked to read the old histories, and he knew. The power that word had when it was capitalized. Humans and dwarves, Lorarikans and giants, warriors and mages. Every species, kingdom and walk of life knew that they had something to fight for now. As he walked down the grey hallway, he thought he saw some of them out of the corner of his eyes. Like Kunai, the cobalt sergeant that had bellowed far too loudly for his short frame. That had to be. The old scar on his tail jogged down the path. Mia, her family finally let down as she pulled off pieces of armor on her way. Others he'd known and fought with, but mostly just shadowy figures. He hoped that maybe there was one or two fewer because of how he died. If someone had to go, he'd rather it be him than his companions. The light at the end started to loom closer and Crown realized that he couldn't feel his heartbeat anymore. His breath, which should have been racing, was absent. He didn't hurt, but he was missing something. Life. So simple and unnoticed until it's gone. Past the glow so bright, it was almost a barrier. 
He smelled freshly baked bread and heard soft laughter. But he wasn't in a hurry. He'd get there when he got there. And so he kept putting one foot in front of the other in a proud soldier's march. His walking stopped, or rather, something stopped it. Before him was a man who was not a man, nor was it before him. The reality of his death began to melt away, shifting geometrical panes of color and sound enveloped him. A thousand things that could never look like eyes, but would also never blink or stop staring, glared down at him. He was still on the path. He knew, but he also knew that this was not a part of normal death. What are you doing? it asked. Then a tired voice crown answered, I'm dying. I'm done. Get out of the way. He heard about this from the soldiers brought back from the edge, but when the clerics still had time to worry about mere soldiers, the demons deployed their troops in this realm too. And suddenly, Crown was very happy he'd died with his sword still in his hand. Why are you dying? It demanded. Because one of you bastards shoved three feet of metal into my ribcage, probably. Now, let me pass, or I'll do it anyway. Crown wasn't in a hurry, but he found it was never a smart move to let someone believe that they were allowed to keep you trapped. <laughs> I am not one of those bastards, Ned laughed. Crown was interested now and lowered his sword. What are you then? Because I'm not going to believe that you're one of the grand spirits. Come to sing me to sleep. Makes more sense you're just one of those evil things, he said with a mocking tone. They are not evil, only hungry. I am hungry too, I wish to feed, it explained. The colors and eyes focused on Crown, sword now up again. If you think I'm going to be a good meal, I'll give you heartburn, it laughed. Its laughter hurt his ears and his toes and his heart. But it wasn't malicious, at least, so he thought. <laughs> you are dreaming before death. I want you to live. I will feast on the story you tell. It giggled. The only response to that was a stern look from Crown. He wasn't a stupid man. In fact, he had many talents. Good with the sword, good with the kitchen knife. Knew more about history than some town elders. And won at slats more often than he lost. But he was pretty sure that anything feasting on his story would hurt a bit. No pain, no anything. I will watch. I want you to thrive for me to watch. Tell me what you want. Crown was finally sick of this intervention. What I want. I want the war to end. I want my family safe. I want my friends alive. I want the world to not get fecking eaten. I want everyone to get along and stop fecking each other over so much. I want a perfect world. That's not too boring to live in. I want it gift-wrapped for my kid for his birthday. And then, I want to fecking die in fecking peace. Can you do that, huh? And you give me what I want. Around him, the colors froze. The eyes swiveled. The path flowed under him. The shapes and solid voices turned to a cold set of numerical reds and greens. For a moment, he thought that he was finally going to finish him off and wondered if dying while dying was bad for the soul. Then, it snapped back into motion again. I can do nothing. Your story is your own. Wake up, ground. Morris, wake up. Wake up and show me a feast of your own making. 
and the path was gone. Crown fell and fell and fell, down into the grey beyond measure, with no beginning or end. Around him and inside of him, shards of colour and sound blossomed into nothingness. And suddenly, a heartbeat like a war hammer inside his chest. His breaths came, ragged at first, and then like a blacksmith's bellows. He opened his eyes to see the churned mud and filth and smoke and blood of the battlefield. The weight of his armor felt more real all of a sudden, and his sword was conspicuously absent. Next to him lay the corpse of Mia, his constant sparring partner and friend during their brief training and marches. His eyes pulled upwards to where the lions still raged against each other. The demon horde was smaller than some, but the fight wasn't done yet. And as long as even one of them was still alive, they were a threat. A glimmer of two bright metal caught his eyes, and he saw his sword, or what used to be his sword, buried in the throat of one of the dead demonic troops near him. One hand yanked it out, and used a gleaming piece of steel to drag his still-recovering body over to Mia. When his hand touched her hair, finally let down, he knew two things. That had very much been her that he'd seen on his way to the final garden at the end of life, and that she wasn't there just yet. He leaned down to whisper through a throat long gone hoarse from shouting, Wake up, Mia! Wake up! His breath paused, then several. He almost began to doubt the promise of the fire burning in his mind and his veins. Was it all a dream? Was he just a lucky idiot? Maybe. And then, Mia opened her eyes. The gash in her throat closed itself. The hand missing fingers found itself whole. Lost blood poured back into the body, and her first sight was crowned, smiling down at her and offering her a hand up. Uh, what, what happened? The elf stammered out. We died. Did you talk to anyone while we were walking? Crown was surprised at how calm he was, how in control he felt. It felt deadly familiar, like the moment of his decision to throw his life down for what he fought for, but constant now. Mia picked up her weapon and peeled off a chunk of her armor that was nothing but jagged edges as she responded, letting the shattered metal fall to the mud. Something that said it wasn't a demon asked me what I wanted, said that he wanted my stories for trades. She kept looking at her hands, as if to make sure that it was still there. I said, I wanted to live. I think, Crown said, as he knelt by the body of his old sergeant, scar tail dripped off his body and missing somewhere in the bloody field. A lot of people said that. He leaned in and whispered, Wake up, like and I, wake up. As Mia watched, horrified, half in awe, the loud little kobold began to stir, body repairing itself back to the health as the spirit flowed back into it. What now? She asked Crown, still half shocked at her own death. The unusually stubborn and strong-headed elf was at a loss for her plan now. Now, <laughs> he chuckled, now we get the second thing that I wished for. His voice raised, and he stepped on top of one of the larger shell demon corpses. Wake up! All of you, wake up! The battle isn't over, and our friends need our help! Wake up! What a delightful wish. I will enjoy watching this one. I may have to make another demon for him. 
He is going to be so much fun. Humans always have the best press. This must be why their gods are always so devoted to them. Perhaps I shall become a god for a while. Maybe I can find another human before he wakes them all up. Let us see. Let us see. End of story. 2048. Story number one. Breath on our necks. Written by I am the hype TFS. We run. We run. And we never look back. We run. Because we made a fatal mistake. We run. Because they will see us all dead for it. When we found humanity, we saw them as another race to conquer. Another lamb to the slaughter. Another jewel to add to our crown. We struck hard and fast, and while the response was quicker and harsher than we anticipated, it wasn't anything that we couldn't manage. We had every advantage. The element of surprise, more advanced technology, and even physical superiority. The war dragged on, however, and those in the upper ranks felt disgruntled that we hadn't crushed this inferior race. So a decision was made to destroy their unity, to make them lose their sense of self and pride. Cultural annihilation. We bombed their museums, raised their sacred sites to the ground, burned ancient ruins painstakingly uncovered over thousands of years beneath hundreds of feet of dirt and rock. We hacked their databases, erased their histories and folklore, and crippled their learning institutes. And that was our greatest mistake. We had studied them and their history before invading. We knew that there was a monstrous rage and cruelty deep within humanity's heart. But from what we saw, that beast had lain dormant for hundreds of years now. And we thought it dead from neglect. We didn't know that it was their history that reminded them not to be cruel. We didn't know that their holy sites kept them honest to themselves. We didn't know that their institutes taught peace because... War came so easily to them. In our efforts to weaken their resolve, to break their spirit, we succeeded only in doing the opposite. We had committed an unforgivable sin, and if any had held any measure of sympathy towards us or the hesitation in striking against us, they no longer did. Even if it meant their destruction, they would ensure that they did not fall alone. We didn't merely rattle the cage of the presumed dead beast. We flung open the doors and cut off the chains that bound it. We breathed a new life into its desiccated form and congratulated each other on our victory, even as it grew healthy and strong before our very eyes. We had kindled humanity's hatred. There were those that hated us before, of course, but they hated the soldiers, the war, the politics, and the death at all. They had hated us as a whole. They presumed they were those of us like them on the other side who hated the same things they did and who wanted this all to be over. For our races to go their separate ways, lick our wounds and return to some measure of peace we had once known. But now their hearts were enshrouded hatred 
and their souls were ablaze with rage. Gone were the lessons of the past to show the restraint and mercy. Gone were the holy sights that evoked spiritual purity and serenity. Gone were the ruins and artifacts of civilizations long dead that displayed the ingenuity and beauty of their ancient selves. Now, they hated us, all of us, everything we stood for, because we had taken away everything they had stood for. We had robbed them, not just of artifacts and information, but of a fragment of the collective soul. We had stolen their inspiration to improve themselves, to be better than those that had come before. We had taken their peace, and they would now give us their hate. We tried to fight. We even won in the beginning, but they didn't care about losses. They didn't care about living through the war, so long as they won the battle. They pushed themselves above and beyond the limbs of their bodies through the use of drugs and self-targeting psychological warfare, exerting strength that crippled them in exchange for killing just one more of us, and relentlessly hounding us for days on end without rest to grind us down. They didn't care if they fell dead on the battlefield from exhaustion, if it cost just as much as it did them. And as more of our technology fell into their hands, the worse off we were. They broke down everything they took and studied it over and over until they understood the principles behind it and could make it for themselves. But they went further. They didn't bother installing limiters or safety protocols. Safety and security didn't matter, as long as it meant more of us would die. So we became victims of our own power, as they combined it with the worst of theirs. Our propulsion systems carried nuclear weapons high into orbit to strike at our vessels. Our life support systems hijacked and used to spread poisons and gases that brought long, agonizing deaths to any who came into contact with them. We had ridiculed the humans of peace because we didn't know to fear the humans of war. We knew it now, but it was too late to ask for mercy, too late to offer surrender. So we did the only thing that we could. We sent them all the data we had copied before erasing, all of their histories and stories we had wiped from their databases. We could do nothing about the sites and ruins we had destroyed. So this would have to be enough. And then we ran. We took to the stars and left that green and blue world behind us, hoping against hope that the recovery of that which had inspired them to peace once before would do so again. But before we could even let out a sigh of relief at our escape, we felt an urge, a primal warning to look back. And there they were, the humans that constructed vessels based off our designs, our specifications our technology. They didn't look exactly the same, but the appearance was more than close enough to be disturbing. It felt like we were bearing down on ourselves, as if we were bringing destruction down upon ourselves, because we were. We had no one else to blame but ourselves. We were the cause of this was the effect. So we ran again, and with the humanity hot on our heels, we ran knowing that we could never go home because we wouldn't fight the annihilation of our world. The same fate we once threatened theirs with. We ran from a tireless monster that we had woken from a long slumber 
and knew that even if the histories we had returned eventually lulled it back to sleep, it would not even think to rest before sating its thirst for our blood. We ran and dare not ask for help for fear of setting this hateful beast loose of the galaxy. We pray that when we do find a stumble and fall, humanity's hatred will end with us. But we keep running because we fear it won't. We run and we never look back because we don't need to. Because we can feel it. Their breath at our necks. End of story. Story number two. Humans get stressed with success. Written by Random3x. Greville had just finished having a set of new bioscans installed so he could provide adequate care to the crew of his ship. It was as he went about his duties he noticed one of the humans in his scans had severely heightened levels of stress. Now, this was not something all too unseen as humans were famous for all their medley of emotions affecting their physical state. But this time, it seemed far worse than usual. Approaching one of the closely bonded members of the human pack on board, Greville hoped to ascertain the reason why. Hugh and Paul, is there something wrong with human Kevin? Huh? Uh, oh, no. Uh, not, nothing much. Why? It is my newest scanner unit is identifying an increase in stress hormones release. I was concerned that human Kevin was suffering some kind of illness. He's stressed? Paul replied, seemingly surprised. Yes. He has been showing a massive increase in stress hormones since he started his personal project. Personal? Oh, you mean the book he's writing? Yeah, I, I guess he has been a bit stressed. Why does he not stop writing if performing the action is causing stress? Uh, I don't think it is the writing that's causing him to stress out. Why don't you scan him when he's writing and use that as a comparison, Paul suggested, to which Greeble readily agreed. A few days passed where little happened till he finally got a chance to witness Kevin as he was writing. His scanning unit displayed a reduction in stress hormones and an uptake in the release of neurotransmitters associated with positive feelings within the human race. How peculiar, though, Greeble muttered as he stroked his chin tentacles in thought. How's our board doing? Paul asked. He is showing a great reduction in stress, Greeble replied, still confused by this anomaly of a human. I even heard that he's been proof for publication. His work is said to be reasonably popular, Paul explained. Surely that would cause an even greater reduction in stress hormones. The human Kevin should be celebrating his success. Maybe it's imposter syndrome, Paul muttered. Imposter syndrome? Is human Kevin a fake planted to eliminate our entire crew? Security should cure all then. Scribble, come down, come, come. It, it's not that. Imposter syndrome is, is something weird with humans. So, it is a weird human thing? Greeble asked. Yes. Now, can you lower your side on? Paul asked as he gently rested his hand over Greeble's outstretched tentacle. What is this syndrome? It happens when someone succeeds. Uh, they get stressed out because they don't feel they deserve it. But like they can't help but think, Oh, they really like it. Or, this is all some kind of fluke. For some reason. A lot of creative types are kind of cursed of a second-guess themselves and never feel like their work is actually any good. That sounds awful. Human Paul, why would your race continue to create if such a troublesome ailment awaited them? Because of that, Paul replied, gesturing to Kevin, who had a big goofy grin on as he continued to work. They may struggle to accept the finished product, but in the moment they created, they couldn't be happier. There is also the case of their work genuinely disliked, and it is all in their head. 
the problem we humans have, as our brains can know one thing and feel something else entirely. My head is starting to hurt, Rebel groaned, realizing that he would need more than a fancy scanner device to understand humans. Don't worry, Greebel. Even we don't understand it, and we have a millennia of living with it already, Paul replied, giving a friendly thumbs up. End of story. 2049 On a train bound to nowhere, written by Echoing Cascade, Malibin was a Sullivan with a mission. He had tracked the Mysorian ship where his daughter, Nisa, was being held to this faraway station. He had plenty of money, but simply not enough time to gather the strike force and formulate an extraction plan. So he was forced to look for a human mercenary, a soldier of fortune. The human species had made their triumphant debut into the galaxy many years ago. Sentient death rulers weren't that rare, but the oracle from the goddess of chaos, marking them as their own, certainly made them memorable. They had always prayed to her in one way or another, but after learning she favored them over all the others, they had responded with near-zealous devotion. The soldiers of fortune were some of the most blatant examples of this new adoration. Former soldiers who would take on any mission as long as they felt luck was on their side. Marion found a local bar. Any human looking for work would inevitably end up there at some point, either to strike a deal or drown their sorrows. He looked around for any human displaying the telltale signs. I'm in luck. I was told I could find one here, but you never know. He was looking at a man sitting in a corner of a bar, wearing a long trench coat, thick combat boots, clearly armed and sporting a tattoo of five cards under his right eye. Barion didn't hesitate. He had no time to lose and walked to the man. Barion, sir, I need your help. My daughter is being held against her will. Please save her. Name your price. The merc put his beard down, looked at Barion, then at a picture he held of a young Sullivan girl and pulled a coin from his pocket. Call it! Barion's mouth went dry as he made a bet that he couldn't afford to lose. <sighs> Heads! The merc flipped the coin, caught it mid-air without breaking eye contact with Barion and put it on the back of his left hand. After a tense moment, he looked at it and smiled. Where is she? Marion let out a sigh of relief and explained the whole situation to the merc, who refused to give his name until the mission was over. Marion knew better than question a human superstition. All right, I have to break into a ship full of armed Mysorans, find a Sullivan girl and escape with our lives in less than a, an hour. How do I approach this? He looked at the map that he had purchased and made careful plans for a discreet infiltration. Hmm... <sighs> It would be tricky, but it is doable. I guess I'll go with that, or... He pulled the six-sided dice and rolled it, laughed for a good minute, then prepared for Plan B. The Mysorean guard was bored out of his skull. He had wanted to go to party with the bulk of the crew, but as one of the newest members, he was stuck on the ship. Maybe I should just turn in for the night. A sudden panging startled him. What in the seven hells? He managed to track the source of the sound. Someone was knocking on the door. He opened it, wondering why the visitor didn't bother to ring the bell. Hello? Hiya! Pizza delivery! The guard was about to ask him what pizza was, and the merc pulled an old-school revolver and shot him in the head. The noise alerted several armed guards, and the merc pulled a plasma pistol with his off hand. 
he made his way inside. He shot the first guard that rounded the corner. Singing telegram! Another Mysoran leapt over the dead guards, clearly intent on closing into melee. Nowhere and everywhere. Above a small white table the size of the galaxy, an old hand rolled a pair of dice. The result? Snake eyes. The Merc's revolver, of all things, jammed, and he was now looking at a Mysoran claw heading straight for his face. On the white table, a feminine hand turned one die into a six. The Mysoran slipped in the dead god's blood, and the Merc bashed his head in with the butt of his revolver. He holstered the firearm, pulled a short saw, and resumed his advance. He picked up a few kills along the way until he made it to the mess hall, where two tables had been turned over in a makeshift cover, and half a dozen armed Mysorans aimed their plasma rifles at him. Ah! Uh, Jehovah Witness! At this, they opened fire as one. The Merc barely managed to jump behind a food to avoid turning into a human-sized strainer. He was now safe, but to his surprise, he wasn't alone. The Merc was face to face with a Sullivan girl. No, a Sullivan woman. While the sound of plasma fire continued, he took out a pick caster given by the Baryon. Looked at it and looked at the woman in front of him and raised an eyebrow. Lisa! Salivans are basically blue humans with the garden world salus, and strictly herbivores, that was it, as far as obvious differences went. Nisa took the pickcaster and looked at it. That's an old, old picture. Where did you get it? The Merc couldn't help but stare now. She had curves in all the right places. And then there's what she was wearing. I hope, nay, I pray, and beg that I haven't and won't kill the man among the men who made her wear a French maid outfit. At least... Two sizes too small for her, too. Nisa grinned as she noticed his gaze. You know, you get me out of here, and you can do more than just look. The moment was spoiled by a Mysoran yelled, Grenade! And the small cylindrical object landed between them. On the cosmic wine table, a young land had rolled a pair of threes, but the same feminine hand flipped them to ones. The Merc and Nisa, who had shielded their faces and closed their eyes, slowly opened them and looked at the grenade. Clearly a dud. Nisa moved to poke it with a wooden spoon, but the Merc stopped her. After the grenade failed to explode, another Mysoran yelled, GRENADE! The Merc and Nisa watched in horror the object land in front of them, and unable to leave cover, they waited for death. Nisa then tilted her head. What's that? The Merc picked up the object. Looks like a... Before he could say pin... The tables where the Mysorans had taken shelter blew into pieces, killing them all. The Merc peeked over the counter and shook his head. Those poor frackers! He extended his hand and helped Nisa up. In the end, it was a close affair, but they made it out in one piece. They stopped at the Merc's rented apartment to fix his wounds, rearm and grab a bite to eat. He was in the process of dismantling and replacing a damaged part of his revolver when he realized he should probably call Barion and tell him that he had succeeded. Hello? Yes, sir. It was a success. You could have told me the pick was a decade old, though. Behind him, Nisa stopped eating and listened to the conversation. I can bring her to you in an hour. I have a few wounds that need tending, and uh, my combat kit needs replenishing. Nisa coughed loudly, and the Merc looked in her direction. She walked towards his bed and sat on top of it. She looked at him, and then the bed her eyes leaving no room for interpretation as to her goal. The monk turned around and resumed talking to the communicator. Uh, you know what? Uh, make it two hours. The sound of clothes hitting the ground and stretching could be heard. 
The Merc looked at Nisa again, picked his jaw off the floor, and at a very brisk pace spoke to Brian. It's been a rough day. We'll see you tomorrow morning. Bye. He tripped trying to get his pants and shirts off simultaneously as he ran to the bed. The Merc woke up the next morning alone, looked for Nisa all around his apartment but couldn't find her. He was beginning to worry when his communicator rang. Hello? Hello. Nisa has just arrived. I'll be sending your credits to your account now. The Merc looked at his data state and whistled at all the zeros in front of the one. Baron. She wanted me to know that you took really, really good care of her. The Merc grinned, remembering last night. It's uh, what I do. She also wanted to know your name. They call me Law. I see. Thank you again, Mr. Law. Law began to make breakfast for himself and grabbed a coin. Law. Heads bacon and eggs. Tails combat rations. He flipped the coin, caught it in the air, and it was tails. Law. Bacon and eggs it is. Nowhere yet somewhere, a young man sighed. The last few years had been rather odd for Father Time. One of my youngest daughters married a human hero who is somehow best friends with death. My oldest son, and now another one of my daughters, has developed an unhealthy obsession with a human. He played with the dice on the table. Then a woman sat in front of him. She was wearing an almost transparent white dress, matching high heels, a pair of golden earrings, one of a spinning two-headed coin, and another of dice with all sixes. And if Law had been present, he would have recognized a very human-looking Lisa. Father Time. Now looking like an old man, he shook his head. Why him? The whole human species loves and prays to you. He loves me more than any other. Time, looking at the middle-aged man now, lifted his dice in the hand and watched them turn to dust. He hates you. There isn't a single decision he makes that he doesn't leave to chance, and every time he picks the opposite of the result. He has a tattoo of a dead man's hand on his face. The man changed his legal name to Murphy Law. Take the hint. Lady Luck just smiled and looked at the table. The image of Law making bacon could be seen and in its surface now. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. No man thinks of me more than him. I've decided he will be my champion. Time sighed, nodded, and looked at the image on the table. The unluckiest lucky man alive. End of story. 2050. Story number one. Where am I? Written by its director. Where am I? My head feels as if I put it into a wood chipper. My sinuses are dry, my mind mouth tastes indescribably disgusting. I get the distinct feeling that if I open my eyes, it's gonna hurt. So I keep them closed to try and get my bearings a bit. What is going on? Did I drink last night? No, no, I... Uh, I don't remember. Wait, where am I? Why does the bed feel like a floor? I open my eyes, but it's dark. Thankfully, I involuntarily shiver and pain racks through my entire body. It's cold. Too cold. My bones hurt. I have to get up. I stand and hug myself, trying desperately to be rid of the chill that has seeped into my core. I was on the floor. And it's wet. Why didn't I notice that it was wet? Did it just get wet? Where am I? I try to keep my teeth from chattering and my body from shivering as I look around. It's my room. No, it's not. Where's my bed and floor? My stuff. Warmth. A gust of warm wind blows from somewhere. Oh, sweet relief. 
No, not enough relief. I look around for the source of the warmth. Hey, door. when did that get there? Nothing ventured, nothing gained, my grandma says. No, she's, uh, she's not here. I don't understand. Warmth, need warmth, go to the warmth. I take a step forward, ignoring the stabbing pain in my feet. I've felt it before, standing on the frozen sands of a desert in January at night. The cold stabs through the thickest boots and socks. I look at my boots. I can't see them. It's too dark. Another step, another shiver, one more, and another. Warmer now, have to keep going. A crunch, like the ice, when I was a kid. I used to giggle as I'd step in the frozen puddles and imagine that they were bones of my enemies. Not any enemy in particular, though. Just a conceptual enjoyment. After all, my enemy doesn't have bones. Another step, another crunch, heavier. Can't see the floor, doesn't matter. Need the heat, going to die if I don't keep going. Another step, another crunch, 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 crunch. Is that light? I made it through a door into warmth. It's bright, too bright to see. I shut my eyes and lower my head. What do I do? The warmth feels good in my muscles. No, my skin. I'm wearing skin. No, I'm wearing my uniform. I open my eyes to check. I'd see my uniform and boots covered in blood. My blood. Well, if it wasn't before, it is now. Right? <laughs> oh, the crunch. Leaves. I lift my foot and some of the leaves move. The leaves are in a thin layer and they're covering... Oh. The bones of my enemies. Of course. Why wouldn't they be? No. No. This isn't right. This isn't real. They don't have bones. Why am I in my uniform? I retired and don't wear a uniform anymore. I write stories for people. They laugh. They cry. They feel. And they like it. They like me. Well, not all of them. He can't please all of the people, all of the time, boy, my grandpa says. Except, he's died a month before my son was born, never to get to meet his great-grandson. I didn't cry, though. Needed to be strong for those around me. My pregnant wife, my grandma, my dad, my brother, my sister. They cry, but I don't. I'm too weak to cry. My mother made sure of that. If your mother was so abusive, why do you still help her? Grandpa asks. I look up. It's his funeral. He's in a casket. As earthen and pale, like the bones, the bones of my enemies. They have no bones. But my grandpa's eyes are closed. His face still. I blink and it goes dark again. The cold is back. Where's the light? Where's the warmth? Where am I? What do I do? My t-shirt and shorts feel wet. My shoes stick to the floor as I take another step forward. A soft shuffling noise this time, like a carpet with a soda stain. Wasn't I just... Uh... The floor disappears from underneath me, and I begin to fall. I scream and scream. My throat hurts from the screaming, like there's something stuck in it. I cough. Still there. I cough again and again. I cough so hard that I fall to my knees and water shoots out my mouth. No, it's not water blood. But it tastes weird. I know it's blood, but it doesn't taste like blood. It's supposed to taste. It's cold. So cold. I don't understand. What is happening to me? Where am I? What am I? Music begins to play. 
comforting. No, it's not music. It's movement, slithering, sneaking, encircling me. I take a step back. Is something the matter? They asks. Who are you? I ask. Is that my voice? It sounds like my voice. I am they. You know that already. Yeah, I know they. They doesn't have bones. They is my enemy. I am not your enemy. I'm your plaything. What? You made me. Even now you're deciding what I say and what I do. I don't have bones because you don't want me to have bones. No, 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 no. This isn't right. They are supposed to be my enemy. I'm supposed to fight them and beat them. That's what I wrote. A fecking pun. A play on grammar. No. Wait. Not me. The hero, Avignon, Eurus, Isomir, something like that. A human overcoming an epitome of horror. A being without bones. Who can't be hurt and who can be seen in space between spaces. I look at it. They were exactly as I had described. Thirty feet tall snakes and tentacles and whiskers slithering along many, many corpses. Pulsating, quivering in anticipation. They smiled at me. Don't forget the teeth. The teeth hurt, you know. Everything hurts. Shark's teeth, arranged in a circular row many, many times over. I'd always wondered how something could possibly eat with a mouth made entirely of teeth. You're supposed to be thinking of a way to beat me. Except they can't be hurt. They can't be beaten. I tried, but none of the endings made any sense. I didn't want to use a Dusex machina. Ego. I feel it's beneath me as a writer. They moved closer. I backed away. They moved closer. I moved away. They moved closer. I felt the corner as I tried to move away again. Trapped. Well, let's try again, shall we? They asks. They has a circular mouth, the exact size of my head. It opens and begins to move towards me. The teeth begin to move in circles. Are these teeth bones? I scream as my mouth closes around my head. Where am I? End of story. Story number two. Maintenance, Improvements, and Humans, written by Chain Blue. Captain Bob's face screwed up as gooey tears came to his eyes and rolled down his eye stalks as his taste buds lit up like he had eaten dry plasma. Martin, the seven hells of Jared is in this food, Bob demanded to his empty cabin. The empty cabin did not answer. Bob gulped down his tea, then a half liter of water on top of that, before the fire in his mouth dulled to a mere annoyance. Arbuto, asked Bob, who's on kitchen duty this evening? The ship's computer intoned in its bland voice. Engineering and maintenance technician LeBlanc is on kitchen duty this rotation, Captain. The human? Smacked Bob. The human again? Captain Bob had taken the human aboard and into his small crew as a technician less than six weeks ago, and it had been a mixed and sometimes infuriating experience. Some of the stereotypes about species of mostly were proving to be true. They were always tinkering with things that didn't need to be tinkered with. This was supposed to be a boring, routine, two-month supply run, where his freighter would drop shipping pods into a parking orbit, pick up new pods, and spend two months cruising back home. This run was not boring nor uneventful, and Bob did not like it. 
So, system supply runs will be a nice, safe way to ride out time until your retirement. Bob muttered in a mocking tone and reminded himself to curse the personnel resource advisor that sold him on his transfer from the survey fleet. No more dangerous FTL jumps into the unknown, she said. Just nice, quiet sublight cruising, she said. Captain Bob spoke to the computer again. Captain to LeBlanc. Technician Delphine LeBlanc responded cheerfully as her face popped onto the spray. Hello, Captain. How are the red beans and rice? Technician LeBlanc, are you trying to be funny? growled the Captain. No, sir. Captain, uh, is there a problem? asked LeBlanc. Your dish set my mouth on fire, unlike the first time you prepared it, stated Bob. LeBlanc's face paled for a moment and turned pink. Oh, Captain, I had no idea that you would be so sensitive to spices, she explained. We didn't have much in the way of human spices when I first came on board. Even though you had stocked some human food, she explained. So when we were in port at Phobos Station, I picked up some spices to kick things up a notch. Captain Bob closed the channel without replying, leaned back into his chair and sighed. In the past three weeks, Technician LeBlanc had gotten bored and tweaked the main reactor into such a precise intermix that the ship's computer shut it down because the energy output exceeded 100% of rated output and the safety systems thought the cascade failure was imminent. Three days later... She was supposed to do a routine service on the primary navigation array. The next thing Bob knew, they were being run down and hailed by a system patrol frigate, demanding to know why his ship was spamming an active sensor pings on military-grade frequencies. Better resolution was her excuse. She had been ordered to make no changes to critical ship systems with direct approval from the captain. Then it got worse. She got bored. So then she needed something to do and improve the water pressure and temperature of the personal grooming units to human standards, such that it blasted half the feathers off the Kenko Humsman. On his way to deal with the aftermath of that, his quartermaster nearly bowled him over in the passageway because someone had improved the crawler parts of the mobile saline tank that acted as his environmental suit, such that the damn thing moved so fast that he had not yet learned how to control it. That was the last Ralph's beast that broke the ice. Blank was then ordered to make no changes to any ship systems without prior approval from the captain in writing and put to kitchen and cleaning duties much more heavily into assignment rotation. Surely she couldn't cause trouble just following recipes and assembling meals. The few remaining taste receptors in Bob's Moor failed to agree with this earlier risk assessment. Captain Bob ambled to the office attached to his cabin. He prepared a new standing order that would be sent out to all ten crew members. Humans are not allowed to tinker with, improve, or kick up the notch on any systems, foodstuffs, or personnel without explicit written permission from Captain. Humans, thought Bob, are dangerous because they are never content with leaving one another alone. Bob sighed again and hit the scent only to hear his announcement blast over the ship's speakers, accompanied what he later learned to be was a Zydeco. Technician LeBlanc to my office! End of story. 2051 Breaking Ground, written by Hypothetical Shagoth Skyfelt, as it was eventually named, was now a bustling tourist world. With tourism booming every time a plasma geyser was predicted to occur. Seated in a new, hardened beacon in the middle of a bustling resort and market town. Honestly, if it wasn't flattening everything around it like a clumsy blow from Revel, the Lord of Celebration, the Pelham of Rainbow Flame, could easily be one of Revel's candles from the Yearsend festivals. There were even rumors that the technicians were looking into manipulating the beacon signal to control the flame, 
shaping and tuning its colors. Coral, nest right, was satisfied with the colony's chances. There had been a rough stumble in its start, but they had recovered nicely with some quiet help. Now, though, it was time for his next project. He was a career colony founder, and once they were up and running, there was a time for quiet satisfaction, and then he moved on to the next project. Some took weeks, supplied vast unfolding kits on worlds without any significant surprises or threats. Those were decent paychecks, and helped pay for the more interesting, uh, problematic colonies. Those could take years, and for all their difficulties, those were the jobs where Quirrell felt the most alive. The next job was waiting for him when Sky Fountain was officially established. A band of Narret, a species from the near edges of the Gulf, wanted to try establish an outpost closer to the Concordium space, improving their trade prospects. They'd even chosen a world and gotten confirmation from the Concordian Colonization Administration that they weren't stepping on anyone's toes in the territory expansion. Everyone else had kept out of the region as all the planets were either just slightly too difficult to colonize or just too close to the Gulf for most of the mid-armed races. As cultured or civilized as most of the races may be, there was still a quiet fear of the deeper dark of the more scattered stars. Many maps were marked here, there be void beasts, with depictions of massive entities swallowing various craft in the dark. The scarcity of local races didn't help matters. In any case, these narrow colonists didn't seem to mind the dark, nor the uncertain climate of the world that they had chosen. Every concern Quirrell raised was met with an information packet on how they planned to cope with it, complete with contingencies. They seemed experienced in planning for trouble, a good sign and a client. After he had agreed and signed their various contracts, they led him in on the rest of their worries and the bonuses they were offering. Fully in the loop, Quirrell was doubly sold. This was going to be a worthy project, and interesting as well. A Gakrak was, one way or another, going to be a colony for the history books. These narrates seemed culturally careful. Each stage of their plans contained contingencies, and the next stage didn't commence until all the stages prior were tested, tried, and true each time. These folk, trundling around in their suits, looked for all the world like nestlings, who had managed to hatch their limbs out of their eggs and called it good enough. They still managed to hustle around the colony after a fair clip, and their bulky gauntlets managed a surprising amount of dexterity. But still, eggs. They weren't helped by the robes that they wore on top of their suits, or the fact that they would pull up their hood over their armored domes for inclement weather. Odd creatures, but Quirrell knew them to be true. The colony was coming along nicely, the central structure, the fields, the resource utilization and reclamation plants, a beacon for communicating with the rest of their people at Nera Amreth, and for negotiating trade with the people of the Concordium in due time. The great central administration dome, the first structure completed, contained a medical, child care, storage, power and all the other essential needs of a colony. Rated secure up to a direct commentary strike with the implication that they tested the design practically before allowing it to be used in the field. They even managed to complete what they referred to as their threshold, in relatively short order. A massive circle of salt and powdered steel, scattered and buried in special casks in a massive circle around the colony. A half-day's drive beyond the furthest plant farms and parks, a massive structure, and they installed it like nothing, with amazing precision. Assessors above, 
using the material that went into the dome as standard handplate, would make a young city immune to everything but direct infantry attack. As it was, the dome could house the people and livestock of the colony safely and comfortably, if they weren't so prone to wanting their own space. The colony was even aesthetically pleasing to his sonar and EM-sensitive whiskers. Coral woke with an unpleasant sense of deja vu. It was the early hours of the morning, and once again there was light coming in through his window when there should be none. He rose, panic stretching his limbs and torso into the form meant for speedy movement, rather than the more comfortable orb-like sleeping form. The horizon was glowing red, brighter at several points, but the glow entirely circled the colony. Something was burning, probably shrugging, into his emergency contingencies uniform, Nestrite loped his way through empty streets to the dome, as it was time to administrate. He reached the contingency's office as ash began to blow out of the stars and fall on the colony. Every last neret on the colony was in the dome, carbly and briskly going about their business that they were drilled to do in this particular contingency. As he stepped in, every last neret in the room turned and saluted briefly before returning to their tasks. Situation! Quirrell did his best to not stand there, panting. He was starting to feel his age, and most of his years had involved heavy lifting and not hurried sprints. Contingency Prime, now where the stats had zero unusual readings on their radar and other EMF sensors for extra atmospheric traffic. The leader of the Nerret paused long enough to radiate smug. However, the network acclimators we have on the Satnat registered a series of masses passing through Shortly after, we saw volcanic rifts opening up in mid-plate regions, well away from any reasonable locations for them. How far out? If they hold the form, our guests will hit threshold in about half an hour before local dawn. They don't seem to care about stealth, since they're knocking on our door already. The ash plumes will hit peak density about that time, unless we get lucky with wind patterns. There was a stillness in the air, as this was considered for a moment. As the duly elected administrating governor of the Concordian Pact Colony, Agathrak, I am officially requesting aid from any and all parties capable of prompt response, per the provisions of Concordium Colonization Treaties. It is my personal opinion that I have reasonable cause to fear for the safety and welfare of those in my care. Please protect this colony by any means necessary. Governor Nestrite turned to the senior Narrett once again. Pulse that out on a beacon. We may as well let the rest of the region know what's happening out here, on the shore. The senior Narrett turned to their subordinate at the communications console and waited for the message sent tone before turning back to Governor Nestrite. Then she threw him a stubby armed salute. You heard the man. Girls and boys, unpack your toys. Our guests have arrived to the party and we need to show them how we dance. Her voice echoed throughout the base. Her suits comms tied into the colony's entire communications systems. Everywhere, an awkward egg-shaped narrate stopped, rolled their shoulders, and unfolded. Where there was a colony worth of awkward slow folk toddling around, there were now a plus-size complement of Terran Marine Recon Engineers detached to follow lawful orders of the local governor. In full heavy infantry armor, started with field meters, countermeasures, guns, and blades, and they had just been told to act as they saw fit. In his corner of the command center, Tompkins was quietly cackling to himself. Since groundfall, he had been given permission to act freely. He had been given access to a full extra complement's worth of engineering equipment, as well as some extra special R&D he had picked up, and some toys Nestrite had picked up as their thank you for prior aid. He had months to get, uh, inventive.
The threshold had been the first of Tompkins' darlings. Fleet had taken to calling the groundbreakers the Unsilly, as they arrived through strange ways, and then colonies disappeared. Taking inspiration from that, he had created a huge circle to keep them out. Old sea mine designs that used fuses that Tompkins had dreamed up. Apparently, these little experiments had shown the ground-swimming effect that the craft they used had some weird interactions with pure iron and molten salt. The detonation still managed to affect the craft through their weirdness, forcing the invaders to use more classical means. Near dawn, the ground at the threshold heaved and dust rose. The first waves of their noses bloodied. From there, each yard they pushed cost the intruders dearly, as they weaponized imagination of human engineers took its toll. Fire and lightning, stone and steel all took their toll on the intruders, but still they came, almost as though they enjoyed the challenge. Eventually the invaders reached the edges of the colony's central city, actually using something resembling military discipline in the face of the withering torrents of energy and kinetic combined fire from hundreds of hardened defensive cannons that had been waiting. They were big, but so were the cannons. They were many, but so were the cannons. They were ugly, but so was the work of prepared soldiers who had known they were coming. The tide of big armored soldiers closed on the rock a gack rack and broke. Their smallest, most foolish soldiers were mowed down, trying to exhaust cannons fed by colony reactors. The veterans dug in and waited. The evening came, and a second wave of explosions rocked the threshold. In the fading light and the blazes of ash falling, figures the size of small buildings rose from the ground. Humanity had bloodied more noses, and the Unseelie's siege-breakers had arrived. In the darkness, they marched forward, their thick shells sloughing through the focused onslaught of defensive fire. Then the shallows of the gulf in a solar system formed around a small brown door star. Several ships received an all-eyes signal. Without hesitation, they began spooning up their drives. The reliquary, Pyxis, and the obelisk were on their way. End of story. 2052. Story number one. So they would always have a friend. Written by Clock Tower Echoes. Ever since the first human looked up into the night sky, they wondered who else might be out there. If there was another species like them, thousands of light years away, looking into the same infinite sea of stars for a friend. Even though no one ever answered back when they greeted the night. Humans still held hope of being able to meet another sentient species like themselves. And the absence of a friend to be with them, humanity made their own up in stories and tales around fires. They crafted wonderful and beautiful stories of gods and heroes who came down from the stars to teach them, to guide them, to defend them, to unite them. But most importantly, to keep them company in those dark, lonely nights. Their first rockets pointed at space were powered by as much by the insatiable curiosity to find other sentient life as they were rocket fuel. They launched their rockets skyward and filled Earth's orbit with satellites. But no one noticed. That's okay, they said. Spaces are vast and satellites are small. They are probably hard to notice. They then sent satellites and probes to their own solar system soon sending humans into space onto their moon and their closest friend, Luna. But no one answered. That's okay, they said. Life like us might not exist in our system, but there is still a galaxy waiting to be explored. Maybe they can find someone out there. 
Then they breached the FTL barrier and began to explore the galaxy, sending fleets of exploratory ships in the hope of finding new worlds and alien life. This is great, they said. Surely we can find another in uncharted space, or at least the ruins of their civilization. Then, they had uncovered and charted the entire galaxy. Humans went to the furthest edges and to the greatest depths, braving countless dangers and witnessing even more wonders. The flags of humanity stood on worlds all over the galaxy, and humanity became the master of 10,000 stars and a million worlds. But still, there was no one else in the galaxy with them. Not even ruins. That is okay, they reassured themselves. Surely, we cannot be alone. Humanity had advanced beyond anything previous generations could imagine. Their technology became like magic. They could cure any disease, terraform any world, create any ship, produce any item, and build anything they wished. But there was no one to celebrate with them. Nobody to share what they had made. Nobody to benefit from what they created. And nobody to even recognize their accomplishments but themselves. Humanity had come first in a one-person race with an empty stadium. A hollow achievement. Humanity was alone. Once upon a time, before they became masters of the Milky Way, humanity told stories of what they thought the future would be like, how they would meet fascinating alien races, cooperate in grand projects, fight grand battles against existential threats, and age into an ancient empire that would help usher the younger species into the galactic community, with their thousand-year allies by their side. But it all remained as stories. There were no other alien races, no cooperative projects, no existential threat, no younger species to guide, no thousand-year allies to stand with, and no galaxy to be a part of. There was only humanity, alone in a cold, vast, lonely void. Humanity was the greatest species in the Milky Way, but it meant little in the face of nothingness. So they decided on a new course of action. If the galaxy was vast, empty, and devoid of life, they would fill it with life and become the forerunners they always thought they would meet. Great fleets of ships traveled to every planet with even a spark of life where they would uplift suitable pre-sentient species, and if there were none to be found, made new species themselves to inhabit the world, planet by planet. Humanity seeded the galaxy with life so that one day those species might be able to experience everything, and aging humanity wished it did in the excitement of youth the millennia past. They filled the galaxy with life so they could always have a friend and someone to answer when they looked into the night sky. No one knows where the humans have gone, having all disappeared prior formation of the galactic community. When few races even had created their own spacefaring vessels and left no trace of what caused their mysterious disappearance. There are a hundred theories about what happened, but they have left their scions archives and facilities full of data information and knowledge collected over their long, lonely lifespan to teach and guide them. There is not a species in the galaxy who does not thank or respect the human forerunners. Some even worship them as divine beings who gave them the spark of life and the gift of sentience. The soul system has long been seen as a protected area, a cultural landmark of collective galactic heritage. Earth once home to humanity, is now a cosmopolitan capital of the Milky Way and a mother to thousands of sentient species instead of just one. 
On Luna, there is a shrine with a golden disk that humans once sent out into space in an attempt to greet others that has now been returned home. Its mission honorably fulfilled. And on Mars, there is a memorial dedicated to the early rover humanity sent to the Red Planet, and once thought lost until rediscovered many billions of days past its 90-day mission. Named after the thing humanity ultimately gave to the current generation of galactic life. Opportunity. Once upon a time, humanity told stories of gods and heroes from a sky who came down to help them. They built great ships to meet them, but found that the heavens were blank. And the gods and heroes who they venerated never existed at all. Only finding a dark, empty, lonely galaxy. From this great isolation and void, they decided to fill the galaxy with life. They would become the gods and heroes from eons past they hoped to find, so the void would never be lonely again, and no other species would have to endure their isolation. So, they would always have a friend. End of story. Story number two, Heterogeneous, written by British Tea Company. Perhaps the most amazing feat of nature that has ever been conceived was not the existence of multiple, perhaps infinite, universes, but the fact that across all these universes, there is always the existence of one common biological achievement. The existence of a certain primate race that always will emerge from a world they will name Earth. The greatest feat that these primates have unconsciously accomplished is the fact that even prior to the period of time where they make their decision to who they will be in the universe, they already inhabit the most curious state of being. They are very diverse, very heterogeneous within their traits, though some would characterize this as a result of the fact that there are many versions of humanity. This can be easily disproven by the fact that their history shows much dichotomy. From even a biological standpoint, one could easily postulate the disposition, philosophy, and ideology any dumb animal will possess if given sentience. Burly and muscular predators will inevitably grow into brutal warlords, while the wily scavengers will ultimately evolve into hoarding corporate state. Likewise, we see how territorial pack inevitably becomes a proud warrior race, while the nurturing herd ascends into a peaceful diplomats. With humans, however, it had never been so simple. In their evolution, humans were just as commonly seen as docile apes as they were savage predators. As we look upon the states of several incarnations of humanity, we see the dichotomy has split even further. From power-hungry imperialists, fanatical crusaders, mindful colonizers, vengeful retributionists, and fighting revolutionaries, it would be almost easy to believe that all these humans could each be different species in itself. But at the end of the divergence of traits, we return to what humanity finds once more to be on common ground. It is not an inborn trait of being pragmatically evil, inherently selfish, unfalteringly just, or possessing strong will. If they were all human with no word in all existence to define the state of being. What do I mean that they're human? It's an innate bond that draws otherwise bloodthirsty, violent, vindictive, and spiteful creatures together. A race of godlike beings that tirelessly work to improve the lives of their lesser counterparts. An immortal emperor who wants nothing more than his people's success. A sole survivor who wants nothing more than his people back. These are all examples of what makes humans human. And now I've witnessed the most peculiar of things. 
I had always fathomed the likelihood that someone would discover the means of crossing the rifts between universes, and it appears that the more powerful human factions have accomplished this feat. That, however, is the least interesting of what I've observed. Two political powerhouses have discovered a third, much weaker state. Yet despite the conflict of ideologies that they would easily sour relations between any other combination of creatures, there is nothing but careful dialogue around the table. I watch the most amazing phenomena that extends beyond simple boundaries. End of story. 2053. What if first contact came tomorrow? The G20 assembly is once a year. Otherwise, the majority of the world leaders do not meet unless there is a damn good reason. On July 9th, 2026, there was a damn good reason. The chairman started without much preamble. Ladies and gentlemen, we have found life on another planet. There was a shocked silence. Then, pandemonium. Who found it? What do you mean? Where were they found? Who has jurisdiction? When are we declaring war? The chairman waited for silence. When it came, he raised his voice. They were found by the Israelis, who leaked the information to the Americans. If you would please turn your attention to the screen. All eyes turned to the screen. Satellite footage was patched in. A brownish-green planet appeared. This was Ilias 7, a planet in the Bowie system. This planet was examined as containing possible potential for human life. Very little water, as you might notice. The Israeli probe, Gevara Shalosh, dropped an outer probe containing six robotic drones. Each one was programmed for a different purpose. This one was programmed to look for irregular patterns, but it found something else. The footage changed. The drone was rushing through a barren desert. Occasional bizarre plants leapt from the ground irregularly. Suddenly, the drone paused. There was a structure in the middle of the desert. The drone zoomed up to the structure and panned out. Multiple other structures were in surrounding area. A strange series of wooden panels faded into the distance, looking like a bizarre railroad. Suddenly, the door to one of the structures opened, and a creature stepped out. The crowd gasped. The creature was the least eight feet tall. He was skating, wearing primitive clothing, and had strange cords leaping out into the air. The cords appeared to be sucking on something, the chairman paused the video. For the time being, we have dubbed these species caudals. They appear to be sentient. As you can see, they are bipedal like humans. Our scientists have theorized that they may have evolved from some kind of lizard instead of apes. We believe that they can survive without water for a long time by drinking moisture directly from the air through these cords. Back to the video. The chairman pressed play. The creatures seemed to notice the drone and rushed back into its shelter. It came out with some kind of primitive rifle. It fired. The drone went to static. The footage stopped. The chairman addressed the audience. We must now decide on our next move. The corridors appear to be, technologically speaking, at about where we were holding in the 1700s. However, they also seem to have some technology that we didn't have. Certainly not then. That railroad is seemingly run with magnets. Gravity is about 80% of what it is on Earth. This may explain why the corridors are so tall. Originally, the chairman continued, the Americans had planned to keep this a secret, but a group of Israeli scientists threatened the entire United States of America that they would turn whistleblower if this information was not shared with the world. The president agreed and turned the information over to me. I will now take suggestions from the assembly. In what way should we make first contact? The 
The German Chancellor raised her voice. I would like to express on behalf of the entire European Union our desire to join the project for first contact. What purpose would we have for first contact? Will we be giving or taking? The Japanese Prime Minister answered. Presumably, it would be a bit of a column A and a bit of column B. Anyway, surely after our long search to make sure that we were not alone in the universe, surely these corridors would enjoy a sign as well. The Russian leader spoke. I will ask simply, because I assume that we will beat around the bush until someone says this. Will we be waging war? Do these corridors have anything we want? If so, will we be taking it? The Ukrainian Prime Minister leapt up. Absolutely not. We will not be a part of some kind of new imperialism. This kind of attitude is an embarrassment to humanity as a species. The Russian President laughed. Easy for you to say. I hardly doubt Ukraine will contribute much to the international stage. Incensed, the Ukrainian Prime Minister said, I will not stand for this, the... The chairman interrupted. Before we can decide on war of any kind, I must point out something important. The Israelis were only able to send their probe a little over five years ago, and that was unmanned. At our current level of technology, it would take 70 years to send a manned spaceship to Ilias 7. And considering that Ilias 7 has near-Earth gravity and an atmosphere... It would be considerably more difficult for a return mission than from, say, the moon. The hubbub quieted. That was a significant detail. The Australian Prime Minister was the first to respond. So what do you propose we do, Chairman? What was the purpose of calling the secretive meeting? It was just to tell us the information that we can't act on. The Chairman smiled. It was obvious that he had been waiting for this question. Are any of you familiar with the term moonshot program? Some people nodded assent, and some had looks of confusion. Well, I will explain for the benefit of those unaware. In the 1960s, during the Cold War, America and the USSR were delved deep into space race. When the Russians were the first to send a man into space, it was a massive blow to American morale. In response, President John F. Kennedy sponsored a massive and frankly ridiculously budgeted mission to put a man on the moon. Kennedy did not live to see the results, but I am sure you know the result. The chairman took a deep breath. This was the moment of truth. I propose a similar plan, not unlike CERN, which took a massive effort from the European nations. I propose the entire world throws its collective back into the situation. The crowd whispered to themselves, this was a lot to ask on zero warning. Now I realize this may sound insane, but I urge you to ask yourself, why have we looked to the stars? So many of us have asked this over the generations. Even when Mr. Kennedy was trying to reach the moon, there were those saying, surely this money could be better spent on medicine or poverty than to be spent on some useless rock millions of miles away. And certainly, some of them had a point, but they failed to see one crucial thing. We do not look to the stars so that we may have them. We do not reach for the stars so that we may own them. We reach for the stars so that we can reach even further. Is that not the furthest ambition of mankind? We explored our planet. We climbed the highest mountains, crossed the wildest seas, ventured into the most untamed wilderness. We mapped out our entire world. But were we satisfied? No! We wanted more. Always the next journey. Always the next horizon. That was why we went to the moon. To prove that we were not done. And I ask you now, the greatest undertaking mankind has ever faced stares at us now. 
Will we allow petty arguments and monetary squabbling to stop us from succeeding? Will we sit on our laurels and say that we have achieved enough? That there is no need to reach further. No! We were never finished. We will never rest. We will not stop until the human race has achieved all there is to achieve. The chairman lapsed into silence, spent and hoarse. There was a momentary pause, then applause. Quiet at first, getting louder and louder as it spread around the room. There was some cheering. It was most undignified. The chairman smiled. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen of planet Earth, I now put forward a motion to begin a United Earth project, to join our forces to achieve a common greatness. This project will be to one day send and return our people to and from this world. I beg you to let us step into our future and begin our next great journey, together as one species. The motion passed 76 to 13 to 0. That was just the beginning, of course. There was a lot more deliberation, for no good thing ever came easy. The story was given to the press and confirmed as real. Some nations backed out, and some made demands, and some refused to oblige. It took months before any actual action was taken. But slowly and surely, the United Earth Project came to pass. The Moonshot program dubbed Operation Prometheus began. In the first order of business was to send a message ahead of the landing party. The Israelis, first to find Ilias Seven, were chosen to lead the charge, but it was a group effort. About six years later, a series of canisters were launched into Ilias Seven's atmosphere. The canisters were wellies, because someone at NASA was a War of Worlds fan, and the name stuck. These wellies were carefully dropped from a satellite in orbit around the planet. The satellite had been dubbed Sagan-1. The idea for launching was simple near corridor settlements, but not actually in them. It would not be a good introduction for humanity if a welly fell out of the sky and crushed a child. After landing, the wellies unscrewed themselves. If a corridor would care to look inside, they would find a wealth of information. They would find the written alphabets of a hundred human nations. They would find pictures of humans, Earth, Ilias 7, technology, and the corridors themselves. They would find devices with recordings of human language, they would find instructions on how to convey information back to the humans. And most importantly, they would find a message. This message would read as thus. Occupants of this world, we extend our humblest of greetings. We are from another world far off in the sky. For a long time, we have searched for our others, and now we have found you. We hope that you are not alarmed by this message. We realize that this may come as a shock to the majority of your species. We assure you that your existence came as a shock to our species as well. We wish to tell you something of the utmost importance. We will soon be sending some of our species to come visit your world. They will come in an iron ship from the sky. We do not know when, and we do not know how many. We will send more messages in the future. But we implore you to understand one thing with utmost sincerity. We wish to come in peace. We hope you understand this and choose to accept us in peace as well. Maybe they would indeed accept the humans in peace. If they didn't, well, there were 12 nukes on board the Sagan One. In the event of disaster, the Parabellum Plan would activate. Under the auspice of the Parabellum Plan, the first three nukes were to be dropped in deserts as a warning. The next nine were to be used when the time for warnings was over. This was not included in the information in the wellies. 
Perhaps the corridors would decipher this information, and perhaps they wouldn't. Perhaps they would accept the incoming explorers with open arms, or perhaps with blazing weapons. Perhaps this was the dawn of a golden age, and perhaps an age of darkness. But all that we can do is try. The rest of it is for the future to decide. End of story. 2054. Story number one. Humans don't know how to die. Written by Catfish21SM. Mission Log 00. We have officially been tasked with acquiring a human specimen without being noticed and researching possible methods of assassination for possible future gain. Mission Log 01. We have finally acquired a human specimen. They seem to be in top condition, perfect for experimentation. We were able to track an emergency beacon to an escape pod. Apparently, the ship was destroyed due to an error in the navigational computer. As such, it has been determined that no one would notice the human missing and be able to link it to us in any possible way. This is a perfect specimen. Even though the human is due for experimentation on possible assassination attempts, other crew members posed ethical concerns with the treatment of the human. It is majority opinion that while we are not performing experimentation, we should treat the human as an honored guest. They will die soon regardless, so as captain of the vessel, I saw no issues. I gave my captain's quarters to the human and informed them that they are not to roam about the vehicle. They happily agreed. Mission Log 02 It is well known that humans prefer high nitrogen, low oxygen atmosphere. This is because their bodies turn oxygen into a chemical that is poisonous to them. Thus, we attempted to change the atmosphere composition with their chamber to be mostly oxygen. Results, the humans seemed to be more energized than normal. There was no observable negative side effects, even after several days of continual exposure. Conclusion, this is not a viable form of assassination. Mission Log 03 Humans prefer a high nitrogen atmosphere. However, results of the previous experiment displayed that humans are able to survive in low nitrogen environments. Thus, suffocating humans is not viable method of assassination. We attempted to add other elements to the atmosphere and measure the results. Keeping the high oxygen atmosphere, we added additional helium, carbon, methane, and xenon to the atmosphere. We explained to the human that there was an issue with our atmospheric generator, and that we resolved the issue in order to lessen suspicion. Results. The human displayed mild symptoms, but nothing that is not considered otherwise normal for their species. The only noticeable symptoms formed were a change in voice pitch. Helium caused higher pitched voices. Xenon caused lower pitch voices. The human found this somewhat comedic. Conclusion. This is not a viable form of assassination. Mission Log 04 After concluding that altering the atmosphere is not a valid method of assassination, we then sought a more direct method. Thus, we turned to a chemical that is banned from production across all galactic chamber members. The most potent poison known in the galaxy. We attempted to add alcohol to the human drinks. We attempted various amounts. Most species find one one-hundredth of a milliliter to be the lethal dose. If it does not kill them, then it'll leave them severely damaged. The goal of this experiment is to find the minimum lethal dose for a human. Thus, we began at one one-hundredth of the normal lethal dose and increased the dosage appropriately. Results. At first, the humans saw no noticeable difference as we approached adding 40 milliliters, more than 4,000 times the galactic lethal dose. The human was able to determine that the drink contained alcohol and asked for more. After giving the human more than 100 milliliters of alcohol, their attitude and personality began to change in noticeable ways. 
They became less conscious of their actions. After 1,000 milliliters, we began to deny the human more alcohol. The next day, the human woke with a mild headache and had trouble remembering the events of the night before. They apologized for destroying several items in their bedchamber. Conclusion, do not give humans alcohol. Mission Log 05 Crew morale was suffering as the human proves to be exceptionally resilient to assassination attempts. The next attempt modified their gravity. It is a well-known fact that humans are able to withstand double their planet's natural gravity. We attempted to increase it to four times their natural gravity. Results. The human began exercising, and they claimed that they felt weak and needed to build more muscle mass. No human that's twice the strength of average is a terrifying monster, and it is a well-known fact that humans are able to build muscle mass very quickly. We immediately ended the experiment to avoid increasing the threat that the human displayed. The human asked us to return the gravity to high settings. We explained that it was a mistake and would be dangerous to do so. The human assured us that it would not, so we made up an excuse using galactic standards for regulating gravity to avoid a possible issue. Conclusion. Increasing gravitational forces will only strengthen humans. Mission Log 06 At this point, the human had begun to get suspicious as we did not come near any other signs of civilization yet. Wanting to avoid angering the human, everyone knows what happens when you anger a human. We agreed to try one final drastic experiment. If it did not work, we would decide what to do next based on the human's reaction. We fully expected to have to eject the human out of the airlock. We attempted to directly kill the human using one of our new and upgraded handhold plasma generation devices. The device is built to deliver a concentrated dosage of electricity through plasma into the subject, causing multiple organ failure and heavily disrupting nervous activities. Result, after shocking the human, our device left a slight mark on the human's forearm. The human asked to borrow the device. In a panic, the crew member accidentally dropped it into the human's hand. We expected the human to turn it on us immediately and commandeer the vessel. Instead, the human began uh, shocking itself more. It burned a mark into its forearm that appeared as a human internal skull. However, it was in the shape of one of our heads. The human claimed this was a form of endearment. We knew that it was a threat. Conclusion, humans don't know how to die. Mission Log 07 We returned the human back to the Human Alliance. Result, he complimented and thanked us for our kind treatment and wonderful hospitality. Conclusion, I could. End of story. Story number two. Humans the Untouchable, written by Frost Adept. It is common knowledge that all sapient species in the galaxy require sleep. It is a way to force the body to rest, flush waste materials from the brain, repair damaged tissues, and convert short-term memory into long-term. Sure, some species have some oddities. The Magak sleep with their eyes open. They dream more like augmented reality than a vid screen, and long are somnambulists that often destroy things in their sleep, which has led many to believe that they are malicious. But in truth, they merely bumbled into everything in their resting stupor. The Miran sleep for 90 standard centi-rotations of every 100, rather than the normal 75 that is required by the wider galactic community. Then, there are the humans. No species sleeps so little as the humans. A mere 37 centi rotations is considered restful to them, bordering on excessive by their standards, and some get by on as little as 17 or even less. Originally, they were thought to be descended from spray species to Magak, who must keep wary at all times, but they were later proven to have been omnivorous pursuit predators, 
which is how they made their mark on the wider galaxy, despite their middling performance in most aspects of galactic life. It is also why the humans are the most notoriously vexing race to have ever made it to the stars. You see, humans have made a niche in the galaxy as the laborers, able to get tasks done that otherwise would require a custom program to be written for a group of AI servobots. Some tried to take advantage of this at first, and slaving rackets commonly targeted them. That was until the slavers figured out that they had to sleep sometime. The humans, for all intents and purposes, didn't. They managed to expand this niche to become one of the five most prosperous races, working their way into positions in nearly every inhabitable world, every notable space station, and all the wariest of governments across the mother spiral. And they've in turn leveraged this into legal protections for themselves. This would be all well and good were the humans not constantly active. I'm sure you've had the same experience. You're in bed, asleep, but suddenly... A loud bagging awakens you, and entire senti rotations past standard sort of apex. You think, surely there must be an emergency. Why else would there be so much noise at this hour? But lo and behold, when you find the source, you discover it is a human construction project. If you ask the humans to leave, the humans will say that these are standard hours, 9 to 5, in their maddening base 12 semi-rotation system. And you will not be able to sleep as you need to until they have finished. Stars help you if the humans mention overtime. Worse still, they have infiltrated our governments and written exemptions for themselves into our own laws, allowing them to hammer and drill and soar to their heart's content at the most unholy hours you can think of, and to have complete immunity to curfew ordinances every other race in the galaxy abides by while doing it. My friends, you and I must band together to cease this madness, lest we lose all semblance of rationality as we are driven to waken hours in which no creature can retain its sanity. Our rest is at stake. We must stop the humans and force them and theirs construction work to a sane 25 centi rotations. We must stop hammer time! End of chapter. 2055 Please don't. Written by Low Transportation 95. Dear Ambassador Gordner of the Utana people, I write to you as a friend and an ally. We have known each other for many cycles, and I even dare call you a friend. As a friend, please heed my words. Do not go to war against the humans. I will forever remember four words that the human ambassador uttered to me when I approached him to declare war as my species had done since time immemorial. Those words were, Please don't do this. At the time, I thought that he was pleading for the survival of his species. Now, I know better. He was pleading for the survival of mine. Knowing that your people have been a bit withdrawn from the galactic community for the past 200 or so cycles, allow me to put some perspective on this. Humanity was a relative newcomer to the galactic scene, having recently developed faster than light travel and spreading to the habitable worlds in their cluster. They encountered one of the Ryland ships on an exploratory mission and, after several long cycles of effort, managed to communicate comprehensively. Thus, they learned about the Galactic Union and came forth to present their application. It was deemed acceptable and humans were granted recognition and were free to colonize worlds in their cluster with impunity. Their industrial and population grew as their race prospered for many cycles. And they proved to be, if not a useful member of the Union, then a member that did not tax its resources. 
being mostly self-sufficient. After a while, they petitioned the Union to grant them access to further worlds, one in particular on which the resources they desperately needed was abundant. However, my race, the Sorelli, had claimed to this world, although we did nothing with it. Humans offered to purchase this world from us, offered another world of theirs in trade, one which they carefully selected because it fit our physiology and we could colonize it with little effort and almost no terraforming necessary. They then offered more than the world was worth. In our arrogance and sense of superiority, we refused. They then sent covert teams on far ships to extract the resources and take it away. Our navy detected them, and after they refused to surrender the illegally obtained goods, destroyed their vessels. Thinking that was it, that the humans would keep quiet so as to not embarrass themselves over a few rocks, and deciding that slinging formal accusations to the Union would be too much of a hassle, we decided not to do anything further. Humans, imagine this, tried the tactic again, but this time they defended themselves, managed to destroy one of our destroyers before being obliterated. In my culture, this is tantamount to a declaration of war, and we were baffled when the humans did not approach us to declare it. I actually had a lunch with their ambassador, who said something along the lines of, we tried, we failed, no hard feelings. It was mind-boggling. He was readily admitting to an act of aggression, and was completely blasé about losing their mining ships. To clarify, my race evolved from a peaceful herbivores, simply being larger and stronger than most predators in our world and using the strength of numbers to fend off the bigger ones. Ever since we attained reason, our culture progressed into a warrior-like one, but it was tempered by philosophy, honor in combat, getting quarter and respecting your opponent, developing a strong sense of community and value of individuals in that community. We believed in honorably declaring war on our enemies. All of the battles we ever fought before leaving our planets were defensive in nature. Even most of the wars we fought after becoming members of the Union. We were the most powerful fighting force in the Union by a strength of numbers alone, aside from our technological superiority. Nobody else dared challenge our supremacy in that field for hundreds of cycles. I do admit that we have grown complacent, and I dare say arrogant, in that time. What we knew of humans was mostly their philosophies, poetry, art, and skill for bargaining. They seemed a peaceful culture, unsuited for war. After all, they hadn't had a major engagement in almost one of their centuries. They were also physically smarter than us. We thought them no threat. We thought that the fight would be easy as I arrogantly approached the human ambassador and plopped the declaration of war on his desk. I was not as well versed in understanding human expressions then, but I believe that his face displayed sadness as he read the declaration. I was expecting fear, terror, and maybe anger, not sadness. I thought that he was sad for his people, for the toll this war was inevitably going to take. We were such fools. We should have read their history more carefully. This was supposed to be an easy, short war, something to look back at with pride. Slapping away the thief's hand, we would crush the opposition, take over a few of their worlds, sign a peace treaty when they sued for it, do an exchange of prisoners and that would be that. A few songs, a few books. Maybe a few statues and busts. Any sane species in the galaxy would fight like that. The problem was, humans, you see, are not sane. The first few skirmishes we had with them went our way, and we destroyed what we mistakenly thought to be the humans' main force. We captured a few prisoners and put them to the question. 
This was the first moment of subtle unease crept into my mind while reading the reports. While physically smaller than my people, humans' muscles were far denser and more elastic, and their neural pathways transmitted signals with a rapidity my species could not hope to match. This meant that an average member of the human race was about as strong as our strongest warriors, if not stronger, and had reflexes that were twice as fast as ours. They also proved surpassingly resilient, withstanding torture which would have killed a member of our species several times over. Some poisons were tested, poisons which would kill a room full of our people. They seemed to give only minor inconvenience. They could go for days without food and water, and they could survive amputations in unsanitary conditions with nothing but minor fevers and infections that usually didn't kill them. Their brain was, while smaller than ours by half, endowed with more layers and more densely wrinkling. They also had binocular vision, which, while giving them a field of vision a third of ours, gave them unprecedented ability to judge distance on the fly. Just from a biological standpoint, they were superior to us in almost every way. This is when we found out that they evolved to be an apex predator on their world, being hyper-specialized for pursuit predation. As you know, Ambassador, this is almost unheard of in the Union, as most predators on other worlds simply do not attain reason as they do not need it for survival. Humans were an outlier in almost every way. We were still sure of our superiority, but determined that hand-to-hand -hand combat was to be avoided if possible, and if unavoidable, we would focus on numbers. Humans fought hard, even when outnumbered and outgunned. We tried occupying one of their worlds, but it proved to be a tough nut to crack. In the end, we had to resort to orbital bombardment in order to subdue the populace, as we saw even civilians taking up arms and defending their homes. This was a mistake. News that we struck civilian targets spread through the human-dominated space like wildfire. To them, this was worse than declaring war. They have, during their long time of war, slowly crystallized the silly notion that the civilian population was sacrosanct, and that any injury or death to civilians was to be avoided at all costs. And, if it was unavoidable, formal apologies were to be issued, even during wartime. Imagine the ridiculousness of that. I mean, until we fought the humans, we did not understand the concept of being a civilian. Every single one of our people spent time serving in the military, we were all soldiers. That was our mistake. We killed more than 60% of their population of that world in order to occupy it, and we never apologized for killing their civilians. This spurned them into such a frenzy. Almost overnight, all of their industrial capacity was geared towards wartime. Their factories were churning out ships and weapons faster than they could train soldiers to crew and shoot them. To us, this started as a war of convenience, to them, it became a war of vengeance, of extermination. They adapted to our strategies with lightning speed. We were handed defeat after defeat. Their sometimes unfinished ships crushing us in battle. Even worse, not soon after that, they started using a few of our effective tactics against us. Then we began to see that their ships incorporated some of our technologies, some even more effectively than we could. They turned our own weapons against us. We started using nuclear weapons. They developed countermeasures. We'd use poisons. They simply protected their soldiers. We spread virulent diseases. They developed vaccines and used them on their soldiers, untested. If we crippled their ship's weapons, they would ram us at full speed, triggering their reactors at the moment of impact, heedless of death. 
When they reached one of our worlds, it would be horrible. They systemically slaughtered their way through our populated areas, trying to leave as much infrastructure as they could intact. Where they couldn't, they obliterated entire cities from orbit. Sometimes they took prisoners. Most of the times, they just killed everyone. The war lasted for four cycles. It was the longest military defeat any race presided on the history of the Union. Nobody dared challenge the humans. Nobody even tried to get them to stop. They were all aware of our folly. The ruling body must have decided that this was a good lesson for all the other members of the Union. Finally, humans reached our home world, having systemically destroyed and slaughtered their way through all other worlds that we've established colonies on. They spent days destroying our military and industrial infrastructure, pacifying the populace was the correct verbiage if I remember. Then, suddenly, they sued for peace. We were, of course, quick to accept. They compounded another insult upon all of this. The only thing that they wanted, as it was stipulated in the treaty, was the planet they asked for us to begin with. Nothing more. And if we accepted, there would be peace between our two peoples. Not really having a choice, our people stomped into the ground, and then, covered with excrement, we signed the peace treaty. The humans offered us aid. They sent medicine and food and their engineers to facilitate repairs to our world. If I did not see everything with my own eyes, I would not have believed it myself. We were the most powerful navy in the Union, my lord. Now we're broken people living on our world, depending on the mercy of our enemy, whom we foolishly created ourselves. You want to know the worst part? Their ambassador told me that if we sued for peace at any time during our conflict, they would have stopped. But we did not. So I implore you, do not challenge the humans. Nothing good can come from it. Your servant always, Ambassador Sarek of the Sorelli. End of story. 2056. Story number one. Cute little apes, written by the cursor, hasn't moved. As far as first contacts go, it's usually pretty simple. Well, it's simple for us anyway. We find some primitive society developing on a habitable world, set up an observation station, and wait for them to meet us in the stars. Every once in a while, we come across a generation ship, or an in-system colony, but a fledgling after their first shaky flight isn't that different from a fledgling about to leap for the first flight. So, it's much the same, except without the very useful cultural data gained from snooping in on them for a few centuries. Still though, those primitives are usually just a little afraid that we'll be unfriendly, and very eager to make friends in the stars. There have been some rocky stars, and maybe one or two little exterminations here and there. But for the most part, it's pretty simple. First contact with other star nations is a different story altogether. Basically, flip a coin and hope that the other star nation isn't an expanding empire. Thankfully, we've only had to pacify, yeah, pacify two of those. The other two dozen star nations we've met so far have been more than happy to join the grandly named Galactic Union and have politely refrained that our organization covers less than a quarter of the known galaxy. I assure you, dear reader, that refraining has this absolutely nothing to do with the fact that by comparison to us, the other star nations are rather primitive, or at least, it shouldn't. There is, as of, oh, uh, about three capital rotations ago, a somewhat notable exception to this that is, of course, due to no fault of our own. I reiterate, I did nothing wrong, and the other party agrees with me. I think, I hope. Anyway, 
So I was surveying some ruins in the great empty when I found a cute little bipedal ape thing contaminating the ruins. Now, I do admit that I raised my chest and shouted just a little to frighten it off, since I thought that it was a local primitive, or one from a near system. Instead of running away, it held some kind of device and chatted at me. Well, I shouted just a tiny bit louder, but it just put one of its manipulator appendages up to its sensory organ and chatted some more. Seeing as how the normal ways of dealing with the primitive being where they weren't supposed to be weren't working, I combat to the ship. There is a primitive planet site, bipedal, apioid, kind of cute. Are you sure this place is uninhabited? I asked. Strangely, it was the Exo who answered me. The planet has only some semi-social animals living on it. Uh, the being you see is not local. Approach with caution. A bit late, Matron. It's chattering at me. So the primitives clearly vocalized for communication. We know. She sounded pained for some reason, so I asked with some apprehension. What do you mean, you know? I might have bleated like a hatchling just a little, but I swear that the memes the engineers made are exaggerating, because the ape thing answered. They mean they're talking to my ship. Well, apparently, in time it took me to come back to the ship, we were detected. Our computer systems were accidentally breached by their hailing protocols, and they had downloaded and encoded our lexicon into not only their shipboard systems, but sent it to their archaeologist's personal translator. Apparently, these humans can have rather drastic linguistic drift, even in the same language groups, so they'd invented translators before meeting anybody else. I was aware that I might have made an ever-so-slight faux pas. It's not polite to remind a primitive of how primitive they are to their face, after all. Especially if they have somewhat advanced computers. Okay, so I might have said some patronizing things to it. Just the usual flattery about braving the void of space and honest praise for their advanced computers. I did not pat it on its head and call it a brave little child. I did not. Not more than once. But really, when you see what they look like, you'll understand that I was momentarily overcome by how adorable it looks. It seemed to be patient and amused with me. So, I didn't think I started any grudges or anything. Anyway, eventually I asked why he was investigating the ruins, and it answered, but trying to figure out why they wanted to kill us so damn much. They, I asked, exoskeletons, four limbs, four manipulators, four of four locomotion. Most of them came up to about my shoulder. From what we can tell, they ran some kind of vampire economy going until they met us. That might explain why the ruins get newer the further into the great empty we get. Great empty. I managed to explain that the region that we were both in was called that, because thus far we've only found evidence of long-dead civilizations, rather than anything even resembling intelligent life. There is sporadic events of interstellar war, but it's limited to a few glass planets and broken stations. But that wouldn't account for these empty ruins across so many planets devoid of even corpses. It informed me that when the bugs apparently denuded systems of rare resources behind an advancing wave of conquest and simply abandoned them to continue extracting newly conquered worlds, now, you're probably aware the dead civilization of the Great Empty has been estimated to be at least as advanced as we are. And I had just learned that they weren't quite as dead as we had realized. At least, not until they tried to kill these adorable humans. So, um... I get that you're super experienced diplomats and stuff, but try to keep in mind that these guys might have just xenocided the expansionist empire with a technology level roughly equivalent to our own. And don't be fooled with how cute they look. Oh, and, uh, 
Also, humans said that they totally forgive me for calling it primitive. So any bad first impressions are, are totally not my fault. End of story. Story number two, Stop Motion, written by Serpentine Logic. Ticklekick sighed and collapsed on the baseball court. Legs splayed out like a giant praying mantis he resembled. That was fun, friend Julian. Julian trotted over, baseball under his arm, and sat respectfully far away from him. Yeah, totally, dude. Uh, you get some massive hang time with those wings, even in Earth standard. But friend Julian, this advantage is offset by the low oxygen concentration your world has, which I believe represents a significant handicap, and so I submit that my narrow loss was, in fact, a win for me, and by extension, the entire Kalictaki authority. Oh, dude. That's stretching it. My argument is not bulging at all. In fact, I will prove my innate superiority of my brood by beating yours in a game of your own devising. I challenge you and your human classmates to a game of... Paintball. Julian rolled backwards into a roll and stood up, still holding the basketball. Oh, no, dude. You don't want to do that. It wouldn't be fair. And second, you've been listening to the ambassador way too much with all the superiority crap. I agree. It would be a slaughter, but we promise to go easy on you. And my broodmother makes some salient points about our advantages over you humans. Such as? Item number one. The click-attack have an increased field of view due to our compound eyes. You cannot sneak up on us. Item number two. Our vision is far more sensitive to movement than yours. Something shared by all creatures of our cradle world. You humans cannot help but fidget, rotate your eyeballs, and change size as you breathe in and out. Even when you think that you are stationary, we will spot you. Item number three. We have evolved to be the perfect ambush predator. We can stay motionless for hours, before exploding into a frenzy of activity to take down our prey. In case you are unclear, this would be you. Julian angled his head in a way Tuklukuk had learned to interpret a skepticism. Brand click. I don't think that will work. Not out in the paintball field with grass and trees and, uh, I don't know, nature stuff? Ticklickick spread his arms and his version of a shrug. We will just have to find out, won't we? Julian covered his eyes with his hands and sighed. Okay, dude. Fine. You bring your brood and I'll round up a half dozen classmates. But if we win, you quit with us all. We're better than you talk. Okay. Agreed. In return, if our brood wins, you must bow to us in the school hallways for the next week. Whatever, dude. See you on the field on Saturday. Tukuk checked the pods on his back one last time and shouldered his paintball gun. Brood ready, he's clicked. Ready, his brood made Flicklick replied. Do softskins know about pastime hunting here in the week that there was? No, the softskin lava have never seen start-stop movements before. They are prey to us like the antelope. We ambush in the past time. When the air horn sounds, we speed to positions and watch for opportunities. Softskins do not know what attacks them in the time that we will be... Flick, flick, clicked. Smugly. They'll be educated. Jules, I don't know why we're even here. This is going to be so lopsided. Eric adjusted his mask and neck cover, and then checked the tank was full of his gun. Dude, I know. But we're making a point. Besides, we got a bulk discount on balls because I know this is going to be turned into a slugfest for three entire hours. You know Tiklikuk as well as I do. He won't give up until faced with an undeniable proof. He's been going on about the special eyes and stop-start sneaking all week. 
It's insufferable. Uh, but do they understand that that bright fecking floral orange? Julian grinned and put on his mask as he saw the official walk onto the field with an air horn. I guess, uh, that'll be a lesson for them then. End of story. 2057 Arachnophobia, written by Farm Witch 4275 I moved calmly through the station, getting side glances from the humans around me and even a few Torians before I stood at the human ambassador's office. First contact with humanity and the Arachnus had only happened barely a month ago. So tensions were high but friendly. I was the ambassador of the Arachnus people. Humans called us space spiders, and the Torians space oxen. Strange creatures, humans, never figured out what it meant. I looked at the secretary, the delightful lady, who looked up at me with a smile and pressed a button. I absentmindedly used my hind leg to scratch and itch my thorax. Ambassador Chuchkak is here to see you as requested. Oh, excellent, please let him in, came the response. You may go in. Would you like me to bring you some tea? She asked and beamed a smile at me. No, oh, that would be delightful. And don't be greedy with the biscuits. I winked at her, closing four of my eight eyes. A trait we learned from the humans. A sign of trust, apparently. I opened the door to the ambassador's office, having to tilt my body to the side to fit into it. Annoying, but the humans hadn't yet had a chance to modify all their structures to fit us. I walked into the office, and I almost immediately got taken back by the sight of something that filled me with rage. Two of our juveniles trapped in two separate glass boxes. Out of anger, I charged forward and closely looked at them. Something was off. It looked like one of our juveniles. It had the size, shape, eight legs, eight front eyes, large thorax. It had red tips on its knee joints and head. It had fangs like we did, but something wasn't right. I made noises calling it. It failed to respond and resumed wandering around its confinement. The other one was larger, pitch black exterior with reflective chitin and massive fangs. The smell was strange, foreign, and my fear response kicked in as I caught a scent of a potent toxin. My parental instincts instantly vanished. They looked wrong. They smelled wrong. They felt wrong. Uh, what is this? I asked, my mouth parts clicking in confusion. Good morning to you, Ambassador Chick-Hack. This is what I called you in for, Ambassador Carson said, sitting at his desk. I sat confused for a while before his secretary came in with some tea and a few biscuits. We had come to deeply appreciate human culinary arts, and I found pastries and cookies to be the best thing ever. Nervous, I started eating and taking loud slurps of my tea. Thank you, Kimberly. Even as confused as I was, I never forgot my memories. You are welcome, sir. Do enjoy. We have coconut this time. She smiled again, put the snacks down and left. I just stood there and stared at the two strange items in front of me. Finally, after what seemed an age, I looked up at him. The feck? He just smiled and chuckled. Nice to see that you aren't trying to rip my legs off. I called this meeting for us because I wanted to see your reaction to one of Earth's most feared, hated, and misunderstood species. The spider. And also because I wanted to ask you for a favor. Talk a new trait, Dio. Wait, these are from your homeworld, I exclaimed, nearly spilling my tea. Yes, two of over 45,000 different species of arachnid from our tiny little planet. To your left is the Mexican red-knee tarantula, one of the most human-friendly spiders. 
To your right is the Australian funnel-web spider, the single most toxic and venomous arachnid in the animal kingdom. He stated, pointing at each box. Incredible. I used my mid-leg to move one of the boxes closer to inspect it. Are they intelligent? No. Jumping spiders, yes, but only to an extent. Not by any standards that they are intelligent. They are essentially a bug killers of our world. They hunt insects, snakes, birds, and other creatures, depending on the species. Most humans hate them, he replied, handing me some photographs of the creatures we just mentioned. Why? I stood dumbstruck for a moment. Why do a lot of your Earth creatures have resemblances to Galactic Federation species? Some of the resemblances are, I looked at the red knee, uncanny. No idea. Strange twist of fate, sick joke of the gods, a universal anomaly. Who really knows? Genetic scans and DNA testing have proven repeatedly that each species is so far removed genetically that any real connection is worthless. Even if they look like you, they are far from you. See? He handed me a photograph of a human relative, the ape. Well, that's interesting. That's uh, very interesting. I said, further looking at more photos. Now the reason that this is happening is because I need to tell you about something called arachnophobia. The fear of spiders. He looked at me, stern and patient. I put my now empty teacup down and looked at him. I am listening. Spiders, arachnids, have been a part of human evolution since we started. An evolution spanning millions of years. An average of, and this is still with the advanced medical tech we have nowadays, 200 people are killed by venomous spiders every year. The beast right here, he pointed to the funnel web, is responsible for half that number. Seriously? He had to be joking. That's what I told myself. Humanity led the charge against the Incumni and wiped them out with few losses. How can a little insect kill a human? Seriously, 40 different protein toxins in those fangs, he replied, making sure the box was sealed. 40? I backed away from it. We had three types of protein toxin, and one of them was an anesthetic. By the matriarch. So, uh, with that in mind, we have developed as a species uh, with a very severe disdain, if not an outright hatred of spiders. At least according to most people. There are freaks of nature that love them, keep them as pets, or breed them to farm them for antivenom. You look like a giant backing space spider, so when meeting humans, please keep this in mind. He looked at me and relaxed back into his seat with a smile. With the kind of damage these creatures cause, I'm sure your fight-or-flight responses are somewhat, uh, questionable. I clicked my mouth parts a bit joking manner. He chuckled in response. There was once a case in northern U.S. where a guy burned his house down because he saw a big spider. Another case in Australia where an infestation of funnel webs led to the use of military-grade explosives to demolish a building. We both let out a hearty laugh. Oh... So it's a kill-it-with-plasma-fire mentality. We've been there and know how to handle it. I winked at him, clicking in amusement. That brings me to the next item on our agenda. We already have trade and working agreements between us, as well as colonization plans. Now xenobiologists, however, have discovered something very interesting about you, specifically related to your venom. If you will indulge me, I would like to provide a demonstration. He rolled up one of his sleeves. If you think it is safe, then please be my guest. I stepped back and let him do his thing. Crazy human. That was all I could think as he picked the knife up and cut open his arms, gritting his teeth in agony. Crazy human. I stood there absolutely godsmacked at the sight as he collected some bandages and tied them and then used a small injector. Crazy human. After a few seconds, he pulled the bandages off and showed me his now eviscerated arm.
crazy human. A crude, he said between gasps of pain, a crude demonstration, but you, you get the idea. What in the void are you doing? Oh, my. He was cut off in mid-sentence by the sight of the gaping womb now suddenly closing. The flesh that had parted now magically somehow sewing itself together. Blood disappearing and the cut vanishing across a few seconds. Within less than 30 seconds, his wound was gone. The ambassador, worse for wear from the shock, but fine. I grabbed his arm and looked closely at it, marveling at the miracle I was witnessing. I looked at him. How? He sat back down and took a drink of water. Crazy human. To put it bluntly, my biologists and scientists somehow came up with a sort of miracle heating agent distilled from your species' venom. With a combination of various ingredients, including plant materials, a certain type of hemp plant, and of course, science. We made a few samples. He sat down, caught his breath, and handed me a small reinforced case full of vials with a blue liquid in them. Crazy human, I said aloud. I mean, uh, how does it work? He ignored my comment. Apparently, when your venom is combined with a certain kind of chemical substance, it gains some staggeringly potent regenerative properties. Two types of protein and one type of anesthetic protein. Probably distilled and mixed, administered with care, we effectively had the single greatest medical achievement in our history. One we've been looking for for centuries. I calculated, thought, considered we had never considered our venom to be much use these days. Not even in combat. Can it be mass-produced? The base ingredients, yes. Your venom, no. We have tried repeatedly to try synthetically reproduce the prion-based protein that your venom produces to no avail. It's simply too, uh, unique. That brings us to our state of affairs, he said, sitting up straight, getting serious. Indeed, I said firm, thorax down in concentration. We would like to form a trade agreement for the mass production of the regenerative formula. Would save countless lives and would make us both staggeringly rich. Your people provide the venom, we provide the other ingredients. There is one more detail, though. He pushed his intercom button. Send in Mr. Hakim, please. The Torian ambassador, Hakim Alhoof, walked in on his hooves, clanking on the ground. Yes, he said, ignoring the smell of blood and the spiders. I looked up at the towering man. Did he cut his arm open for you, too? Please don't remind me. I can still smell it, he said simply. Crazy human. One of the ingredients in this medical formula is the Torian's alvarius plant. We have a human equivalent, aloe vera, but it is nowhere near as potent. See where I'm going with this, he said, and let us think on it. We looked at each other. I spoke first. Her species once thought to be toxic and venomous even to look at, turning out to be the primary benefactors of the greatest medical achievement in the galactic history. Thought to be naught but mindless beasts that only know how to dig dirt and farm vegetables. Now, farming to contribute to one of the most life-saving plants in history. The Torian ambassador said in turn. Humans being humans, only with more helping than usual, Carson said in his turn. We all paused and thought, back here, I'm in. We all said in unison and began signing contracts and agreements. End of story. I'd quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and patrons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Lord Andrical, Dragzoon WRE, Holly's sister, Ambrose Cattell, and Quantum Wednesday. Thank you very much.